Hey there, welcome back to your favorite regenerative agriculture podcast, Ranching Reboot, the podcast that reboots your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher. Coming up after the ads is a conversation with Carter Brazan from Manitoba, Canada. Carter shares some of his personal story. He talks about how he met his wife, and together they went on a journey to improve their own health, which led them to open their own slaughterhouse and retail store in addition to building a grass-fed beef business direct-to-consumer. Carter also tells me how he's going to feed through the winter in Canada. I love making content for the podcast, and I've roadmapped out some goals and milestones, and I need your help to get there. I don't mind if you skip the ads. Sometimes I do it too, especially on Joe Rogan, and that's okay. I need you to take just a tiny moment out of your day while you're scrolling and go check out my sponsors. Please either click the link in the show notes or on my link tree. Every click matters to my sponsors. All right, crew, I need to come clean. For the last two years, I've been taking grass-fed beef organ supplements. A few months ago, I reached out to several different brands, and I'm pleased to announce that I found a brand that I can align with. Introducing OneEarthHealth.com grass-fed and finished beef organ supplements. Look, we all know that the liver is one of the most nutrient-dense foods available. Packed with iron and B vitamins, it's a great source of choline and folate. Sourced from grass-fed and finished cattle with no fillers. I take the beef liver blend and the organs blend, which includes spleen, pancreas, kidney, heart, and yeah, a little more liver. I take them every day and I feel great, except when I forget. Then I notice I have less energy and less focus. Check them out. Go to www.oneearthhealth.com forward slash Brian Alexander or click the link in the show notes. Yo, what's good, my homies? It's your boy Red Hills, and I'm here to tell you about these Bubble Link beef snacks. Let me tell you, they straight fire, you dig? I'm talking about real high-quality beef, seasoned to perfection, and slow-cooked to give you that melt-in-your-mouth taste. And let's not forget about the packaging. It's tight, it's fresh, and it's perfect for on-the-go snacking. Now, I know what y'all might be thinking. Red, ain't no beef snack going to be good enough for me. But trust me, these Bubble Link beef snacks are straight-up game-changers. I'm talking about that real beef flavor packed with protein and made with all-natural ingredients. So if you want to elevate your snack game, snack like a boss, then you got to try these Bobo Link beef snacks. I'm telling you, they're the real deal. And don't take my word for it. Try them out yourself and you'll see why I'm hooked. Trust me, you won't be disappointed. Peace out and stay snacking, my homies. My name's Red Hills Rancher and I'm the steward of the Red Hills. And if you didn't know, you do now. Bow wow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, good morning. Thanks for joining me. Um, it's Carter. How do you say your last name? Bazan. It's gets it gets screwed up all the time. It's Bazan. I I definitely would have got that wrong. So Carter Bazan, welcome to Ranching Reboot. And uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. So why don't you uh, why don't you just kind of kick us off real quick and tell us about a little bit about where you're at, like your thirty second elevator speech. Okay, I'm Carter Bazan. We own Carzan Land and Livestock, and our Direct-to-consumer beef business is Carzan Local Market. Um, we're based out of Southie, Saskatchewan. So directly dead center of Saskatchewan, well, the lower half of Saskatchewan, I guess. Um, we're directly north of the 
pretty much the Montana, North Dakota border uh, between the two states. If you go straight north, you're going to come within 10, 15 miles of our place. So probably, yeah, that's probably nice, nice and warm up there in the middle of January. It's uh, actually this week's been pretty nice. It's like minus 14, minus 15 Celsius. So that's kind of nice weather for us. <laughs> I'm not even going to ask you to do the conversion to freedom units. Nope. It's just, it's cold. I just know that minus 40 is minus 40 both ways. And uh, last two, I guess last week and for two weeks prior, it was minus 35 Celsius to minus 50 Celsius, depending what the wind chill was. And uh, yeah, it's not fun weather up here, but we deal with it. Probably a little snow on the ground too. We actually probably have more snow right now than we've had in the last two or three years um 2013 was a big snowfall year for us we had like the the at the feedlot going down the lane we've got a tree line on one side and the and the snow always builds up but i've got pictures of my truck and the payloader bucket maxed out and the snow's 10 feet above my truck and we're probably not going to see that kind of snow this year but we've got a pile of snow for for just being the first week of january it's going to be interesting what we got come march I'm so dry at this point. Like I wouldn't mind a couple of feet of snow, even, yep, even with I the bet. challenges that it comes with. Cause we don't get feet of snow down here. Like a six yeah. inch snow, a six inch snow would be kind of a big deal. Cause we'd have, you know, two, three, four foot drifts and I'd, I'd yeah. create some problems. And yeah. I get, you're like rolling your eyes. Like, yeah, two feet of snow. Oh, no, there's like, this year is going to be a heavy snowfall year. Last year was okay. But two or three, two, about three years ago for the previous two years, three years like there wasn't enough snow to take your skidoo out your snowmobile out like there just wasn't everybody went to the mountains because there was no snow around here to even utilize unless you wanted to go jump ditches along the highway that was about it that's about the only snowmobiling that ever gets done in barber county kansas i don't even think anybody owns a, a an actual running snowmobile down here that was going to be my question does anybody even own a snowmobile down there i I honestly can't say that in over 40 years of living down here, I've ever seen anybody out on a snowmobile. Okay. I, I've been on one once. Yep. <laughs> took a trip out to Reno oh, like 12, 14 years ago and uh, took a rental tour of some snow machines up in the mountains. Yep. That, was, uh, that was pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So uh, tell, me about, uh, tell me about your operation. Tell me about your ranch. You, where do you want me? You want me to start right from the beginning, or you just want me to tell you about it? Uh, well, how did you come to be on the ranch? So, I guess I'll start where Dad came from. Dad's from originally. From, we we essentially used to ranch together, then we separated. Now we're back to kind of helping each other out. So, Dad moved out from uh, Inglis, Manitoba. He actually first went after after college, moved out to. Uh, Okotoks, Alberta, I think it was Okotoks High River area, and ran a purebred limousine outfit out there, managed a purebred limousine outfit out there. And then in 84, he applied for a job at Regina, Saskatchewan. That's our closest major center is Regina. It's about 30 minutes away. And our feedlot, what we call the feedlot, is uh, 15 minutes north of Regina. So in 84, dad applied for a job at what was the Hereford Center, it was called. It was a Canadian Hereford uh, Association owned bull test station and he got the job out there and they had just transitioned from just Hereford cattle to a multi-breed bull test station. 
So it turned into the Saskatchewan Livestock Center. Um, Dad tested bulls there from 84 till we left there in 95. He decided he got approached by Superior Livestock out of the U.S. and they wanted to start up a Canadian division. And he decided that was going to be the best bet for our family. Could be his own boss, wouldn't be a, he had a pretty good job. He's a government employee, essentially. He was a government run bull test station. He loved what he was doing there. He wanted to stay. But when he approached the board of directors and said, you know, I've got this opportunity, I want to do both. I can run this business from home and not have to affect my job. They said, you know, pick one or the other. You're not doing both. So he said, well, it's a no brainer. I'm going to be my own boss. Left, um, started Superior Canadian Livestock. That was our cattle buying business. Still is our ca dad's cattle buying business. And we videoed cattle back in the day before the internet existed. We videoed cattle, put it on Superior's sale in the States and eventually transitioned to Canadian Satellite Livestock, which was kind of Superior's competition up here. And we ran cattle through those sales. And then that was in 95 till about 98. 98, we had an opportunity to buy a half section of land, which is up here, that's uh, 320 acres of land, right beside the, the old bull test station, right on number six highway. Um, it's a major thoroughfare through Saskatchewan. Bought that land and built a, depending on the year, depending on the cattle, depending how much crowding you want in the pens, we can feed about 1,500 head. Um, we only feed about 1,000. Right now, the feedlot's empty. It's been empty for the last, well, since I left in 2012 um, for managing dad's operation. So we, I started as a cattle buyer um, at the ripe old age of about 16 and uh, started buying cattle for dad. Uh, when we built the feedlot in 98, we went from 50 purebred Hereford cows. I'm a third generation Hereford breeder. That's what that lady is behind me, is a Hereford cow. Um, it's in my blood. So third generation Hereford breeder. Um, we had about 50 purebred Hereford cows back then in the early 2000s. And when we built the feedlot, we decided, well, now we got our own place. We don't, because dad was at the bull test station, we couldn't have our own cattle there. It was just like conflict of interest deal. So right. we had neighbors cows all the time, rented grass, um, sold bulls. Like dad had a sale down in, uh, I want to say Bozeman every year with, uh, an outfit out of Plentywood, Montana. Um, sold bulls out of Bozeman and then out of the bull test station. And then in 98, we decided, well, let's get into commercial cattle. And we went from by, by 2001. Yeah. 2001. We went from 50 purebred Hereford cows to almost 400 commercial cows. And it was, uh, it was interesting. We, I was raised, I, I call myself a farm kid, but growing up at the bull test station, we weren't as, the manager's kids, as any kids, we weren't allowed to do anything around there, just a liability issue. So I grew up in 4-H, um, grew up around show cattle, did some showing with my uncles and, uh, you know, neighbors who were purebred breeders and stuff. And that's what I grew up in. I, we weren't, we didn't have any cows out when I was a kid. We, you know, we were farm kids. We, we played around there, but we didn't do any farm activity. So when I turned 14, 15, we built the feedlot, I jumped full feet in to raising cattle and you know formulating rations treating sick cattle walking pens running equipment essentially before that i'd ran a 90 30 bi-directional to pick bales and that was about it and uh by 16 17 uh, no 17 18 when i started buying cattle for dad i graduated high school right after that and became a feedlot foreman at the age of 18 and when we expanded our cow herd 
instantly got thrown into being a, a ranch foreman at the age of 20, 2021. And we started growing our cow herd and then good old 2000, May of 2003 BSE hit. And all of a sudden our cattle were worth nothing. And we had all these commercial cows. We had a feedlot and uh, we decided to keep every single heifer that hit the ground. And we didn't sell anything. We didn't sell any call cows. We kept everything. We bred everything. And I'm not sure on the exact numbers because I was still pretty young and my memory isn't what it used to be. But I'm pretty sure we were pushing 450, 500 cows by the time the border reopened. And uh, Kevin, March, or February, March, thinking we had the world by the by the horns. And then we pushed Kevin back to April, March, April, and wondered why we ever did it in February. And then to April, May, and wondered why we ever did it in March. And now we're Kevin, May 7th, and look back and wondered why the hell we ever did anything different. Um, so yeah, I started buying cattle for dad, managed the feedlot, managed our cow-calf herd. And then in 2005, we started renting some land up in the Touchwood Hills, um, about 45 miles from our feedlot, our home place. And that's where we are located now. That, that rented land we ended up buying and grew a ranch. Um, we're running about 4,500 acres now, uh, 4,000 acres up there and about 5,000 acres of around the feedlot and some rented land around the feedlot. Um, yeah, and over the years we've, we've gone up and down cattle wise, um, just, you know, you get a wreck here and there and wrecks happen and uh, you know before i used to be on all these chat forums and stuff as a kid and that's how i met a lot of guys in the cattle business was through like ranchers.net and uh, cattletoday.com all these these cattle forums and i was on there from the age of 14 15 and you start realizing you're not the only one having wrecks and it's nothing to be embarrassed about and then in 2007 i took ranching for profit through uh, dave crockett oh yeah there's the yeah there it is Gotta have the day. Uh, took ranching for profit. Uh, Dave Crockett was my instructor. Uh, and, uh, you mean Alan Crockett? Alan Crockett, not Dave Crockett. I'm thinking Davy Crockett. Alan Crockett was my instructor. And uh, I went into ranching for profit in 07 thinking I would learn so much stuff and it would change my life. And I came out of there not upset about it, but pretty much Alan had kind of laid it out that if you got to feed five to six months of the year, you shouldn't be in the cattle business. And it was, like something he might say. Yeah. And that's, you know, growing up, we've always rotational grazed. Dad's been rotational grazing since the eighties. Um, we've always worked on cattle working for us, not us working for the cows. We've, we were already May calving by then. Um, rotational grazing, you know, we, we run, you know, our grassland is is a 10 species mix of grasses. We don't just do like around here. It's mostly alfalfa brome, alfalfa brome, alfalfa brome, um, or straight alfalfa. And we, we're running at a 10, 10 plus species grass mix. And we're, we're like, we're, we're always increasing it, trying different things. So I came out of there and we'd already, like, you know, you divide your enterprises and have your enterprises separate. We were already doing that. We have our, our cows are separate. Our land is separate. Our feedlots separate. Our cattle feeding business is separate. So I came out of there and I didn't really learn much. I was kind of like, okay, this was, it was okay. I, there were some things I've, I still got to go through my ranching for profit book. I've got a bunch of stuff flagged and we're looking at what, 15 years now since I looked at that book and I probably should go back through it. Maybe take the course again. Now I, that, I, you know, guys, other guys are running it and doing some different stuff. I would recommend another trip through. I mean, I, I really would. Cause I went in late 2006 
Um, and that was not long after Dave Pratt had taken over the company. No, yeah. that's wrong. He took it over way before that. Uh, yeah. But I took it in 06 and Dave was my instructor. And I went again in 2019 for the first class that Dallas Mount taught after he officially bought the company. Okay. Um, so, I, and I think there's a bunch of our friends on the, on one of those apps that we use that are actually uh, getting ready to start ranching for profit in billings in like oh, a okay. or two. like this weekend they're gonna they're gonna be starting i think there's like five or six of them down there uh, okay so that'll be uh that'll be fun and i'll say this about about the ranching for profit curriculum you know things change and things evolve over time and they you know they add things and they build on to things and you know some things that you know that they might have been teaching back in 2007 are kind of maybe de-emphasized or you know that's not taught and it teach another part of of that or they teach it a little bit differently so and and you know as an alum you can always go back for a lot less money so i would i'd recommend it i mean i would, I would yeah, the, recommend it. it it's on my list and I'd, I'd love if dad would go like back in 07 i wish dad would have went with me i came out of there with and I, i'm not saying i didn't come out there with any ideas i had a lot of ideas when i came out of there the biggest one to this day is still an issue is succession and I wish dad would have went with me back then. Same thing with like, we're, we're looking at uh, these holistic management courses and I'd really like to hit some soil classes and some soil, you know, seminars. And there's been some good ones up here in Edmonton and in brand and Manitoba. And I've got him on board to go, but we just don't have the time to get away. But I'd love if dad would come to that. Cause I came out of that in 07 and we try putting a plan into place for a succession plan or moving forward. And it's 15 years later and nothing's happened. And that was one of the main reasons. So after that, that course, you know, I, we continued keep keeping on the way things were. And it always sat wrong with me the way and dad and I disagree on some things, but we do agree on a lot. And my dad has taught me a lot more. Like when I met other ranchers at that ranching for profit thing, I thought as a 23 year old kid that formulating rations and like, we, we don't call the vet. I don't, I have neighbors that call the vet for everything. Like every vaccination they do, pulling a calf, everything, they call the vet. We don't call the vet. Like I'll call the vet. I like vets that'll text you back and forth if you got something you just can't figure out. But my dad taught me from a very young age, coming from a feedlot, you know, management position and from a bull test management position. And he'd gone to course after course after course through the government um, when he was the manager. And my dad is a source of knowledge that I cannot, like... As a cattle buyer, his customers are always phoning him, tapping his brain on this and on that. And he doesn't get everything right. And nobody gets everything right, but he's a very intelligent man. And so I grew up thinking, you know, every every farm kid formulates rations and knows how to pull sick ones and knows how to treat sick cattle and knows how to evolve through different um, vaccination protocol or uh, treatment protocols. And every kid knows what withdrawal dates are and they don't. It's an, <laughs> It blew my mind when I started talking to friends and they're like, what? what are you talking about? Like protein and energy and, you know, roughage and, you know, dry matter content and TDN and they had no idea. And I thought that was just common knowledge. So coming out of that ranching for profit thing, I was like, Oh, I guess dad does know some stuff. And now listening to your podcast and, and working cows and reading all these books and stuff. <laughs> I told dad the other day about some stuff I was learning about. And he's like, so you're saying, I'm not an idiot. And I was right all these years. 
I was like, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not saying that. I'm not going to admit to that. Cause over the last few years, I mean, all of our neighbors do corn. Like they all graze standing corn. And I got sick and tired of buying feed, especially when feed hit 250 bucks a ton last year and the year before. And I said, we got to try corn. We got to try corn. And dad's anti-corn, anti-crops, anti-farming. And he farmed back in the eighties for a bit. And, and we've grown crops for silage and stuff around the feedlot. And he's anti all that. And I'm like, let's try corn. Let's try corn. Let's try sorghum sedan. Let's do something. Like we need to figure out a way to get these cows. And we need to lower our costs. No corn's corn's not working out. These guys don't pencil in their corn. And now I realize he's right. Like when guys around us are fair, oh, corn costs me a buck 25 per head per day. Okay. Well, they don't charge themselves for their tractor. They don't charge themselves a wage. They don't charge themselves depreciation on equipment. They don't charge themselves for their land rent. And because all of our companies are separate, our cows have to rent the land off our land company. And our land company charges out what is either um, like what's hay prices and what would that land have yield in hay or what is crop rent in the area worth and which one's more money? Because you have to figure out that opportunity cost. And dad's always figured out that opportunity cost. And that was something in Ranch Profit. I came out of thinking, okay, he's right about that. Like figuring out opportunity cost. If we could rent the land out to somebody else, well, you know, whatever's going to make you money. So when we tell, like we, we custom graze a little bit for a couple neighbors and we don't anymore because our grazing right now is a buck 85 per head per day. And it should be probably two bucks per cow calf pair per head per day. And that's what we charge our own cows because that's what the hay is worth off that land. Is, is that it? We can come back to this. Is that just a winter rate or is that a year round rate? No, that's a buck 85 per head per day on summer, spring and fall pasture. And then, we charge ourselves roughly 55 to 60 cents per head per day on our own winter grazing. And we got neighbors who are like, well, I can get it for a buck. Well, go get it for a buck. Cause we need to justify, we, we we're better off getting somebody to come in, cut this land, bale it and haul in bales off and sell that feed. than we are getting you to rent it. And now after really focusing on fall grazing this year and learning some things on our own bale grazing over the last three or four years, we're done putting up hay. And that might change based on what feed costs are. But I remember one, somebody in one of your podcasts saying that why, or maybe it was working cows, but I think it was yours. Why would you harvest your organic matter and your nitrogen, take it off your land to move it to somewhere else on your ranch, put it down and bale graze it. And that's still better than selling it off your ranch. But why not take somebody else's organic matter, somebody else's nitrogen, and put that on your ranch and leave your organic matter and your nitrogen in place and use that as fall grazing? And if you don't get to it because the snow gets too deep, well, it's going to be organic matter for next year. And we've always believed in, in our rotational grazing setup that, you know, you let the cows, every plant should be bitten, crapped on, urinated on, or stepped on, and then you move along. And we've always maybe overgraze our pastures still like we're, we're, we're still not perfect at grazing. We still have a lot of issues that I'd like to work out with dad, but we're doing it better than a lot of guys. Our, our neighbors watch us and they're like, well, how can you run that many cattle? Like we're, we're running roughly a thousand animal units on 4,500 acres. And I mean, we've it, got neighbors. Every area is different. And every area is different. Every area is different. And what, what's that in context to say your your neighbors are you double what your neighbors are, are you uh, quadruple or more 
Okay. Our neighbor, we got one, we got two ranches beside us that are brother and sister. And I'm not sure on their exact numbers, but I know before they split the ranch, they were running probably 13, 1400 cows on 50 quarters. So that's a lot. 8,000 acres. Yeah. So they're running 1200 cows on 8,000 acres plus renting out another two or 3000 acres on the low, on the closest Indian reserve. And, uh, and they're putting up a lot of hay. They're putting up a lot of hay. They're putting up a lot of corn and growing all this feed to feed their cows through the winter. And we're running, like we were, we were taking two or 300 of their cows every year, plus running our own four or 500, depending on the year and still having carryover and still cutting hay, still putting up swath grazing. And the, they always ask, well, how can you run so many cows? Well, it's the cross fences. We got the whole ranch broken in like the, the main ranch, the 4,000 acre ranch where we call the ranch, it's broken into 40 acre parcels. And we, and I don't deal with poly wire and stuff. I don't, we don't have time. And I'd love to break that land down into 20 acre parcels. And that's what our water system we're putting in is for, is that we can break this land down into 40 acres or 20 acres. The way it's fenced right now, the 40 acres, it's because of uh, water. Like we we're in pothole country. So on, on 160 acres, you're looking at probably 15 to 20 acres of water um, of sloughs. And you're looking at on a 40 acre piece that we've cross fenced, you're looking at probably five, minimum three, maximum five sloughs on each 40 acres parcel. But in the last three years of drought, we went from having water on every 40 acres to running nine quarters of land off of a slough the size of a pickup truck. Wow. And pulling cow, cows walking through a hundred feet of mud to get to that water and pulling cows out with the tractor, pulling cows out with the truck. And you do like you break necks when, when, when a cow gets suctioned down and you can't get a tractor close enough to lift her up and you got to pull her back. You next, you, we've broken the neck and it's, it's, a, it's a horrific scene to be part of, but it's better than, you know, you got to put her down. And we just said, screw it. Like we, I planned this water system. So, so going back, I planned this water system for dad back in 2012 and we're, he's just finishing the project now because he saw how much weight we lost on the cows, how much weight we lost off the calves, um, the cows getting stuck in the mud and then cows walking through belly deep mud to get to that water. And then the calves not wanting to suck those udders and it just turned into a wreck. I mean, our open rate went through the roof His his open rate went through the roof. I, I pull my cows off the ranch for my grazing season because i run my purebred cattle need their herd groups and that doesn't work with our rotational setup so i i haul my cows down to some full 160 acre native prairie that i rent that i don't want to put the infrastructure for cross fencing into or it just doesn't work so they get they come off the ranch so my cows had a really good conception rate other than one pasture and i'll, and I'll be completely honest we had 100 percent opens on one pasture um it was a wreck we had a we had a bull pass a semen test and four years of using him, never that summer I watched him. He was always following cows. He was never hurt. He had never broke his dick. He, you know, never lame. Didn't breed a single cow. We semen tested him after the preg checking was done, passed the semen test. It was just That's no weird. libido. Absolutely no libido, I guess. I've never the vet says it happens very rarely around here. I've never seen it in my life. So this year, talk about stress, like watching every bull breed multiple cows complete a service our bull our bulls we'd watch for hours and hours and hours you never see a bull breed i've got i got an 11 year old bull i just shipped this year i've never seen him breed a cow in my life not once 
I've I watched him for days. Would see him following cows. Would never see him mount. Would never see him complete a service. Ninety-five percent bred every year. So you get to the point of comfortable comfort being comfort. Like your bulls are going to cover everything. So last year was a wreck, and for both of us, and uh, we just decided screw it. This water system's going in. Doesn't matter what it costs. We're done. And thank God for. I, I hate using government programs, but they're there for a reason. So we've got a government program that's you know, to better utilize your grass is going to pay for a certain percentage of this pasture pipeline. And I wish we would have done it in 2012 because it probably would have cost about 25% of what it's going to cost this year, but it's done. I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat with some water systems. Like I've got, I've got about a third of the ranch that's not well developed, like not anywhere close to where, where I want to be with cross fences or with water. And I see the cost that it's going to take to put that water <laughs> in. And, you know, I, I've wanted to do it since probably, you know, 2014, 2015, but we had a big wildfire in 2016 and then cleaning up, uh, rebuilding fence and cleaning up, you know, all the burned up trees out of my Canyon. So I'd have, I'd have creeks and cattle access again, that took two years and all of my money. <laughs> so we're, we're still, we're, we're trying to get back to a point where we've got some saved up in the war chest. So we could go back and, and attack some of these water developments and water expansions. But it seems like just as soon as you get a few dollars saved up, oh, here's COVID. Yep. And that's if it for us, like the between Ducks and like we've got we deal with Ducks Unlimited Canada on we got long term, like I want to say lifetime lease agreements, but they're not anymore. They're long term lease agreements. We deal with Ducks Unlimited and uh not Nature Conservancy really. Um, but there's the Canadian government has always had some really good programs. And for any young ranch, I've had a bunch of young people reach out to me on TikTok since making these videos. And I would recommend if you're in Canada to find all these programs, like the Saskatchewan water infrastructure program is going to pay for a big chunk of this water project because we're part of the old program, the new program. There's not a whole lot of money towards it, but through, through ducks unlimited, they'll pay for cross fencing. And yeah, you got to put easements on your land, but I would rather have those easements on that land and, and get that land fenced and seeded to grass and, you know, protect our riparian areas and protect the wildlife on this property. And yeah, those conservation easements will always be at the back of our minds. Like, Oh, that's always going to be there. But I had a good talk with a lady yesterday and she said, you know, our, our fear is that a, a, an environmental wing nut starts running ducks unlimited up here and, or at least our area, our area office and starts wanting to control how you graze your cattle. That's our biggest fear. But she said she had a good thing. She's like, if they ever try that, there will be a class action lawsuit slapped on them so fast that they leave their head spinning. And I thought, I never even thought of that, that all these other ranchers, there's there's thousands of ranchers in Saskatchewan, I know of for sure, who've got all these easements on their land that do what we do. So between Ducks Unlimited and the, the Canadian uh, Environmental Stewardship Program and through this CAP program, I can't remember what that stands for, but there's money out there. And the Canadian Forage thing, I know Steve Kenyon is really pushing this Canadian Forage deal, and they will pay you up to $75,000 to get land cross-fenced, seeded to grass, put in cover crops, put in water pipelines that are going to better your rotational grazing setup. And if you do things properly and, and break up different projects to different programs, you can essentially cross-fence your ranch, seed it to grass, put in a water system, and it's going to cost a lot of money out of your pocket, but that money will come back to you. 
And we've been doing those programs since 2001. And then, yeah, I am scared of, like I've heard on you, you talk about, like I'm, you don't want to use those programs because what the government could do down the road. And that does worry us too. But I'm going to take the money if it's there. That's our opinion. Like use it till it's gone. Cause it's not, it, we pay taxes. Why shouldn't we be getting that money back? It's kind of our mindset on that. And, and, and I agree with that. And that's a great point. And it's interesting you brought up Nature Conservancy and, you know, some of these other NGOs with their conservation easements, you know, the, yeah, they can come out and, and put a conservation easement on your property and you get some money to do a thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think those conservation easements are a huge can of worms. And there's some of them that are, are, are good for the landowner that are great for the landowner. And I think that there's some that really take advantage of the landowner in the long run. And just like you said, yeah, it is a huge worry. Okay. I'm going to sign an agreement with an organization for a hundred years that I'm not going to do something. And yeah, even though it says y'all can, you know, maybe exert some influence on what I'm doing, you say you're not going to do that now. Well, what happens in five years when that guy quits and somebody more radical, more wacko with all kinds of wrongheaded ideas comes out and says, oh, no, we're going to end animal agriculture on all of our conservation easements now. Okay, then what the hell do I do to make a living? You know, because I may have I may have signed that right away 20 years ago or even worse. Okay, you know, we we talk about succession planning and I'm not going to ding you on that at all, because succession planning is probably one of the most is one of the trickiest parts of our business to do and to get right. Because it's like your dad's still around. My dad's still around. We don't know how long they're going to be around. And neither do they. And that's the tricky part of succession planning. But getting back to the conservation easements, you know, part of me is torn because, yeah, private property rights are the bedrock of, of, of conservation. I mean, if we didn't have guys like you and me out on the land that care for the grass, that care for the cattle, that care for the birds, that care for the grasshoppers, that care for the fungi, if it's all managed from afar under conservation easements with four higher managers that are just there drawing a paycheck, like that's not going to be good. That's not going to be good for natural species conservation, for habitat conservation, for anything. I mean, we need it's skin in the game is what it is. Carter It's skin in the game. And for you and me, we've got skin in the game every single day. The people you sign those conservation easements with, where's their skin in the game? And even the, even the lease agreements we have, I love what Ducks does in our area. Um, they're easy to deal with. And even our conservation, they're only, I think they're 10-year agreements or something. And uh, then you can break the land. And that, like we'll, we'll never break our stuff. But um, oh, my Zoom just kicked out here. Hang on. You're still here. Oh, I'm still there. Okay. Well, something popped up on my screen. I lost you. So now I don't know how to get you back. Huh. Yeah. I guess I don't know. There we go. So, like, the one thing I disagree with, and the Nature Conservancy, they've got a bunch of land between the feedlot and the ranch, and I don't like how 
how they manage that. I, I get why they're managing it. Like you can graze 35 cows here for 10 days and you can graze, graze 10 cows here for a month and you can graze five cows here for a week. And I, how does anybody supposed to manage that? But ducks, they've got some stuff where they'll just let us, Hey, you, you, you guys are doing great. Like they came out this year to look at our grass and look at this water pipeline we're putting in there. Wow. Like this is some of the best managed grassland that we've got in this area. Keep doing what you're doing. But at the same time, we can only use some of their land every four years. So cows go in there every four years and that grass is old and lignified and there's no nutritional value in it. So we just go in there with the whole herd and we beat it to the dirt and then we leave. And we then we come back in the fall and we'll utilize it as fall and winter grazing because it's got something to eat. But we'd have better management and better bird. Po- and this is where we disagree with them all the time is the bird populations and the nesting areas are st- will still be intact because we will rotational graze through that land in conjunction with the rest of the ranch. So why not just let us keep managing it? Look at the, look at the wildlife on the rest of our ranch. It's not suffering, but that's what we can't get through to them. So there are certain things where I wish we could change. Um, like we wanted to put these, the water bowls that we put in, we put a, a we've got a water station on a water bowl on every quarter of land. Now we wanted to put one on every quarter of ducks land that we rent. And nope, nope, we don't want that there. Cause what if you sell your ranch? Well, we're not. <laughs> that's that's not our plan. Well, what if somebody else rents this? Well, nobody's going to rent it because we have first chance at it. We'll always be renting it. Like, let us go. No, they wouldn't do it. So there are certain things that I disagree with, but we've had a really good working relationship with them. Um, honestly, like there's, they have the Ducks Unlimited ranch is right beside us. Like it's, I don't know how many thousands of acres, but I, I wish we could rent that place and show them what we could do versus what their, you know, their current managers doing. And I think there's opportunities with these, with these wildlife. I used to really dislike a bunch of these wildlife organizations. Some of them, I still do. I just don't like the way they operate or manage things or some of their opinions on stuff. And I wish they just give more power to the rancher managing it. If he's doing a good job, because I think we can do a better job than, than a conservationist or, you know, their people working for them can do when they come out, two or three times a year and measure bird populations. Like we know what's there day to day. Let us manage it. And if we're doing a bad job, bring somebody else in. But I guarantee you, if you got a guy that's, you know, doing things holistically and regeneratively, he's going to do a better job than most of these people running these operations. 100%. We went, we went way down a rabbit hole there, but I think I was, I left off around 20. Do you, I'll, I'll just keep going. So yeah. Yeah. 2012. Trip. Um, 2012, uh, my wife and I were pregnant with our second baby and, uh, dad and I, to this day, I don't think he thinks there was anything wrong with the falling out we had. Um, to me, there was a, just a a thing that happened between us that on a land deal that really rubbed me the wrong way. So in 2012, I came to him and said, I'm done. I'm taking my cows. I'm leaving. And uh, I told him I'd stick with him for a year and I'd manage the ranch. I wanted nothing to do with the feedlot. I'd walked away from the cattle buying side. I hate cattle buying. Um, I love dealing with the ranchers. Can't stand buying and sorting cattle. I've got really bad allergies. I'm literally allergic to everything on the farm. Everything. Hay, straw, grain, dust, cattle hair, horse hair, dog hair, everything. So sorting cattle is the worst thing for me ever. So um, I'm laughing when you say you're allergic to everything. 
because I suffer from that sometimes too. Like there's just days that it just, uh, there's days that I know I'm not going to get a whole lot done because I'm going to be sneezing and blowing my nose all yep. day. There's, I, I, especially when I, I remember I was at Agribition one year. That's our, like our, our Denver, our Houston is Agribition in Regina. And I was washing a bowl in the wash rack. And the worst thing for me is humidity, straw, cattle hair and in a cattle barn in a show setting that's the that's pretty much what you got so i couldn't breathe couldn't breathe and i thought i could finish washing this bowl and i passed out and after that i was like you know what i think my cattle showing career is over <laughs> i'm done so uh i'm allergic to everything so i quit cattle buying for dad probably at, you know shortly after the border reopened in what 2005 to cattle going south and uh i focused on just running the ranch and the feedlot couldn't stand dealing with employees anymore, um, especially guys breaking stuff and killing cattle and not caring and not showing up for work. So I said, I'm not managing the feedlot anymore. It's your deal. It's your baby. I'm coming into work. I will grab the farm truck and I'm heading up to the ranch every day and I will focus on the cows managing grass. That's my thing. We agreed, Kate. And then uh, anyways, in 2012, told dad I'm leaving and I'll help train up the, my replacement. I'll You find somebody and I'll train them up for a year have a good employee but i'm taking my cows as of this 20 november 2012 and i am leaving nothing changed through november 2013 he didn't find anybody didn't train anybody um our relationship like i said in his mind i don't think anything changed but i was very jaded and left got a job at the local steel mill um working for Evraz steel and i spent eight years as a as a shift worker in a pipe mill uh, making spiral oil field pipe for uh for pipelines and uh worked you know 60 what was it 60 some hours a week um working no it wasn't 60 some hours it was 468 hours a month or every four weeks or whatever working shift work and then running 140 150 plus cows on the side and uh i luckily found a neighbor who was going to rent me his yard and his pasture and let me use his equipment at no charge. And it was amazing. All I had to do was clean the corrals and did not break anything. So if I broke a tractor, I had to fix it. So I was there for two or three years and then his well full, filled full of manganese and uh, couldn't. Well? Uh, his, his wet well, yeah. Or uh, yeah, wet well filled full of manganese to the point that the pipes were just plugged up. There was enough water supplied to the house that he wasn't worried about it. But he said, you know what? We can't run your cows here. So in... 2015 I'd been I'd been there for two or three years three years and uh decided you know what I'm this cattle business that was 2013 calf prices no 2015 calf prices were through the roof 2014 2014 calf prices were through the roof cows were worth a fortune I was selling a few purebred bulls off the farm but I had a small herd and you know your average bull sale was bringing seven thousand bucks and oh man there's there's a future in this purebred business again so I went to a guy in Alberta and leased uh, 50 purebred Hereford cows for a fortune on a lease to own, thinking I'd sell, you know, these $7,000 bulls as consignment through his sale. And uh, also went and took on uh, about 190 bred heifers out of Southern Alberta that were supposed to calve May 7th with my cows. Well, April 1st comes around and these calves start dropping in a blizzard. Same. And I had, right. I had rented back the old feedlot that I grew up on, the old bull test station. And it's a, it's a 60 year old, 50, yeah, 60 year old place. 
falling down around you. Like a, a big wind would come in and all your windbreak fences fall over as the railway tires are so rotten, they just break off. And I'm calving these 190 bred heifers with no protection, no barns, no corrals, because my cow's calving me. That turned into a wreck. And then uh, 20, was that 2015 I took on those cows? They showed up. So 2015 fall, market crashes. Calves aren't worth nothing. And the guy I'm leasing these cows off of, the big group, the 190 bred heifers, he was supposed to bring me another 200 May calving black cows that next spring. All right. And uh, calf market crash. And in the, in the agreement, <clears throat> he had say in when the calves were sold. And he panicked. We sold the first week of October. Took an $80,000 hit. Mm. And I tried to convince him, like, like dad's, dad's pretty, he's got his ear to the ground on this market thing. Like he's saying, hang on to these calves for till the end of October and this market's going to turn and sure shit. We sold the calves, took an $80,000 hit and then the market turned and I would have at least broke even. And uh, this guy phoned me apologizing profusely for what had happened, but he was pretty jaded with how much money he lost and how and I was jaded with how much money I lost. So he took all those cows back and, uh, all of a sudden I'm stuck with all these purebred cows that I paid a fortune for and the bull sale market tanks, essentially. Nobody wants to buy bulls. Bull sale market goes from $7,500 average in the Hereford business to $4,500 average in the Hereford business. And then long story short, you know, put a stress on my marriage and come 2017, I'm divorced and, and uh, raising two kids on my own, working shift work, had to sell half my cows in the divorce. So I'm down to, these, you know, 50 purebred Hereford cows that I leased on a leased own and my cow herds down to about 50 head left after the, after the divorce. And then, uh, in 2019, I met this woman, internet dating. I am not afraid to say this. I met her on the internet. And, uh, now we have our, our second baby on the way here in April and COVID hit right after we kind of started, we, I guess we met in 2018 and then I broke up with her because <laughs> I wasn't ready. I, I realized a friend of mine told me after my divorce, wait two years, wait two years before you start dating. Cause every relationship you're going to, you're going to have is going to crumble to pieces. And you I didn't listen him say that. And you're like, ah, oh, now that's bullshit. I, he's, he's wrong. He's yeah. He's, that's bullshit. He doesn't know enough. He was bang on. So I broke up with Carmen and then, uh, we spent a year apart. She traveled. I went, traveled, went to New Zealand, you know, looked at a bunch of ranching outfits in New Zealand, thought, you know, I, I was supposed to move to New Zealand in 2003, right out of high school. Okay. And then BSE hit. So mom and dad let go of all their hired men because they couldn't afford to pay anybody. And I felt bad because I had a bunch of cows there. So I stayed. So that was in 03. And uh, I think, I think if I would have went to New Zealand in 03, I probably would never came home. Like after going there in 2019, I realized that that would probably been my home. I love everything about the place, everything about the ranch culture there, the climate, the people. It's probably not 40 below with five feet of snow in New Zealand right now. I went to a ranch that sees winter and he was telling me how bad winters get. And I was like, what? You get 30 days of six inches of snow and you're complaining and because you're grazing through it. Come on, man. He's like, oh, we put up hay, we put up hay. I'm like, oh, how much pay did he put up? Oh, just not for 30 days, just in case. Well, I wish. And it's silage bales. So, like, it's 
the best feed on the planet. I keep two weeks of prairie hay around and that's it. That's, that's all I got to worry about. I think in, let's see, I came back from the Navy in 2006 and since then, the most I would have had to feed, I think was 12 days in a season. We had one winter about three years ago, best winter, but it, it was, it was a nasty winter. We had lots of snow, but we had managed our grass perfectly. I should, dad managed his grass perfectly because I still wasn't really working alongside him, but he managed his grass perfectly. He fed for 30 days from March 1st to April 1st, the whole winter, the cows grazed the rest of the year. They looked, they were fat as ticks still and looked fantastic. All, we, of we my do friends, all of my listeners in Nebraska, Wyoming, Montana, and North and South Dakota just threw up a bullshit flag that you're only feeding for 30 days. It was the most amazing. And that's, I told dad, like, we got to get back to this. I don't, we've got to manage our grass that we can do this again. And, and that, and that 30 days of grazing was bale grazing. Like we, we, I shouldn't say we didn't feed because we did do swath grazing but that's still grazing. Like the, the cows are doing the work and even the bale grazing. Yes. It's feeding cows, but they're still doing it on their own. Like we, you started a tractor. We were feeding once a week, like up until this past, like this year's the first year we put out all the bales in the fall. We've always done like we, we take the tractor out, pull a bale wagon out full of bales and put out enough bales for each cow group for a week, week to 10 days. And then we'll come back and do it again. We, I had somebody comment on one of my TikToks like, you don't see your cows for a week. Yeah. I don't see my cows for a week. What's wrong with that? They should be able, I should be able to go a week. I've got a bull customer. I'm not going to say where he is. Cause then everybody will know who he is, but uh, I've got a bull customer. He takes out all of his feed and he takes out all of his bales, oat hulls, a little bit of mineral and a little bit of salt to his cows in the fall, dumps it all off, comes back when they start calving in May. And whatever happens happens and i know there's a there's a purebred hereford guy very i think it's fairy carpenter he, he's long gone now but he used to send his cows up into the mountains and whatever came and send his cows up into the mountains in like march and whatever came out in the fall alive with the calf side stayed and that's how he ran his cows and that's why old, we should all be doing that. that's old school that's old school that's scary it's scary it's very scary it's very scary. Uh, on our discord server i think yesterday uh, bob kinford said something he said how did we ever how did animals ever live long enough for us to develop supplements like okay i get that how long i mean they existed and the point is cattle existed for hundreds of years in in all our environments all across Europe, up and down North America, without all the fancy supplements that, that, you know, some people think they need to have. Um, I, they, I just, they'd find uh, it on their own. Like you look at silent and, and I might get this story wrong. This is the story that was told to me, but silent herder mineral. It's an anti-bloat mineral out of, I think, Billings or Bozeman. And the reason it was discovered was guys were watching these deer go out and eat all this alfalfa blow right up walk over to this mineral, this, this soil deposit, start licking it and watch the bloat go down. And then they started manufacturing that. So silent herder, we used to, we, we don't use it anymore because we have a very 
we've got anti-bloat legumes and non-bloat legumes in our mixes now, but we used to be strictly alfalfa, meadow, brome, sandfoin, and sandfoin around here doesn't stand up to grazing like it should, but we'd watch cows blow up like to the point they're going to literally explode. They'd walk over to that silent herder mineral on their own, lick it, and you just watch them gas down. And if we could find out where these animals were getting some of these, these, these deposits from, we've got a hill up at the ranch that the bulls will just go to town on rubbing and licking and digging on this side hill. Are they digging because they need the dirt on them to get rid of the flies? Or is there something in that side hill that they're utilizing? We don't know. I've never had it tested, but it's always that spot. Is it the perfect angle for them to rub? Is it the perfect place for them to dig? Why is it always right there? I'll, I'll even fill that hole in with clay and backblade it so they stop digging. And in three years, that hole is big enough you can hide a bull in it. So you got to wonder what these animals can do on their own. If we, yeah, we'd have to probably give them free access to, you know, a couple thousand acres to figure it out. But and I, and I think that's what, that's what it is. It's barbed wire fenced off the range and it restricted these animals from being able to go, you know, self-medicate, seek out that, you know, seek out that dirt bank that's got the special mineral in it that'll keep their guts happy. There's a, I think there was a lot of nutritional wisdom that animals have that they're not free to express themselves because we fenced off the prairies. Does that make sense? Yep, exactly. Yep. Yeah. So then, um, anyways, going back to the, like where we started and stuff, but, um, so in 2020 COVID hit and Carmen and I had just started introducing her to my kids from my previous marriage. And, uh, boom, COVID hit and we're on lockdown and everybody's scared. So she moved down from Saskatoon, which is two and a half hours away, came down and lived with us for those two months or almost a month, I guess, a month and a half. And totally shut down, right? Totally shut down. Everything was on lockdown. You could go to a, no, no, grocery stores were locked down too. Everything was on lockdown. So we, like we panic bought everything like everybody else. And we had our own beef. So I, I, I've been selling grass fed beef into Regina and area for 12 years my mom used to sell beef into the city and actually she used to work for the saskatchewan beef information center and uh i've told this story before but i'm um, to other people but i'll say it again but mom used to work for the saskatchewan beef information center she'd go around to schools in regina and talk to kids about where your beef comes from what beef is used for you know what products come from your beef and educate children and it's funny because when we were kids we'd be walking through the mall shopping and these little kids are running up to my mom, like, oh my God, you're the beef lady. You're the beef lady. You just came to my school. So, and when people would, she would deliver beef and people like, oh mom, the, the beef lady's here. The beef lady's here. So I started delivering beef and I'm all of a sudden people are, I'm the beef guy. Oh, the beef guy's here. Your beef guy's here. Mom, the beef guy's here. I thought that was hilarious. So when mom got sick of doing the beef sales into the city, I took over and we weren't selling many. Like I used it in the beginning as a place to get rid of like those. And we still use it for that. I shouldn't say we, we did. We still do for off aged heifers. Like you got those, those open third calvers that are worth nothing. They're going to go for call cow price, but they're going to grade on the rail just as good as a fat steer would. Yep. And you're going to get those young, even a four-year-old cow. Actually for me, I'd rather eat a 12 year old cow age 21 days. That's good eating. And if you cook it right and you age that animal, right. You will not, I've got buddies. I've taken steak to back when I worked at Everaz, we've taken steak. I took a 12 year old 48 day aged dry aged ribeye to work from a 12 year old cow. We cooked it up 
And all those guys to this day said that is the best steak they've ever had in their life. I did not tell any of them that it was a 12 year old cow till after we were done. And they, no, no, they wouldn't, they won't believe you. And if I told them, like, I'm Angus steer. Yep. Oh, that's, is it triple A Angus? Man, there isn't an Angus on this place and there never will be again. So, and so I took over mom's beef business and, uh, I was doing okay. And then I was starting to get pretty jaded with dealing with customers and people backing out and you got animals, you know, custom cut and all of a sudden they're not answering their phones and never thought about doing a deposit back then. So Carmen come down to live with us and she had some stomach issues and stuff years ago and started eating grass fed organic, you know, farm raised meat and eating gluten free and eating sugar free and, you know, I thought she was a wing nut on those things. <laughs> Absolute wing. I, I get grass fed. No, I get, I get farm raised meat, but all the other stuff she did and the supplements she took, I thought she was an absolute wing nut. And her talking about, you know, our food losing nutrients and all this stuff. I thought she was nuts and I would fight her on glyphosate. I would fight her on, confinement feeding cattle ideas and you know she told me one time that you know the stress from the animal gets absorbed into the meat and you absorb that stress when i first heard her say that thought she was nuts so then um we're sitting there through bsc and i was already getting out of the the direct consumer beef sales and all of a sudden the phone's ringing off the hook and we could have sold nine animals a week if we had the stock and we didn't have any inventory at all so all of a sudden I'm going to dad and like, what do you got for open heifers? What do you got for open cows? This is what I got. What, what bulls aren't going to make the sale this year? Like the, the yearling and two-year-old bulls, they're going like they're underweight. They're, they're fatting up, but they're underweight. They're going like we're shipping everything, putting everything into this, into this thing. And Carmen had been shopping in Saskatoon at all of these local food producers and places you could get all Saskatchewan made goods, local beef, local pork, local chicken for years because that's what her body needed to heal her stomach issues and and it worked so we're sitting there and i told and we're sitting there one night and i'm like you know what i come out of high school and i had this dream me and my sister had this dream that we would raise grass-fed beef and we would sell it through a store that only has saskatchewan made goods and right next door we'd have a restaurant that only had Saskatchewan had everything that was in the store on the menu. And that's all that was served. And we dreamed up this idea out of high school and realized we had no money. We could never make this work. So COVID hits. I tell Carmen about this idea and she's like, well, why couldn't we? Like, why couldn't we do that? Well, like, suddenly it's a good idea with customers. Suddenly it's a good idea. And we've got the ability to do it. So we, Oh, we could, we could start this business. The one farmer's market she bought at, they had white freezers and nothing fancy they raised all their own pigs and stuff but they had white chest freezers and white upright freezers they didn't have the big fancy glass ones everything was wrapped in brown paper and so we started brainstorming how can we make this work oh we could do this for a thousand bucks we could open this store for a thousand bucks well number one we were wrong (laughs) could not do this for a thousand bucks so we ended up renting a location here in town um right on the highway it's an old house that was converted to a store and then back to a house and we converted it back to a store and we started sourcing all of these local Sask made goods. And we were going to open summer of 2020. We bought one of these big glass freezers because 
sitting in the lunchroom at Evraz at Steel Mill and bouncing ideas off of buddies. Um, number one, we brown paper wasn't going to work for us in the beginning. We're like, oh, all these city folk, they want to see their meat, like at the grocery store. They want cryovac meat. They want to be able to see it. I'd never thought of that before. As a farm kid, brown paper is the way to go. So all of a sudden, okay, we're going to go cryovac. And then we had a bunch of buddies like, well, I'm going to walk into your place. There's me all these chest freezers. Like, I'm not going to go digging through your chest freezers to find what you have. I want to see it on display. So we found a bunch of used glass door freezers and a bunch of used glass top freezers. And I was on, I don't know if you have Kijiji down there, um, like an online sales platform. I was on Facebook Marketplace and Barrage Sale, which is another internet platform, finding all these freezers and buying them. And we're driving you know, six hours to pick up these freezers. I actually bought our main freezer in Banff, Alberta, had it loaded on a truck and shipped out here. It was used because it was cheap. And we opened Carzan local market and we plugged it, plugged in that glass freezer and the compressor exploded in August. So we didn't get up and running till October of 2020. And we come out of the gate running and we hit numbers our first year in business that I honestly never, I thought we'd take five years to hit. And yeah, it was a lot of, it wasn't just beef. It was por- the pork and the chicken and, and all of these Saskatchewan made goods. Everything in our store is made in this province. And we don't outsource anything except ice cream. We used to have ice cream made in Saskatchewan that didn't work out. So we wanted the same principles, locally sourced ingredients, locally sourced milk, locally made product. And that's what we found, but we had to go to Winnipeg, Manitoba. So that was the only thing we imported. And all of a sudden through COVID, the support local thing exploded. Support local farmers and ranchers exploded. Our online platform, I built our website and our online presence. And Carmen is a social media guru. She started a nail and lash business in Saskatoon. And within six months of just social media boosted posts and, and targeted ads, went from no customers to, you know, 8,000 followers on Instagram in like six months and a fully booked clientele. And I always swore I would never, ever date a girl who did aesthetics. I thought they were, and no, I'm not, do not crucify me ladies. But my personal opinion was that women who do aesthetics are all nuts (laughs) until I met Carmen and she totally changed my mind about women who do aesthetics. She I created still thought she was nuts because of the way she was buying. There are things to this day I still think she's nuts about, but she did change my paradigm on 90% of my life and my lifestyle. So um yeah, she created a six-figure business in less than a year. And she all on social media. It's it's insane what the woman can do on social media. So she built our social media presence. I took over that now that she had the be our first baby, and she was on Matt Leave and I kind of run the social media and uh, yeah, we hit the ground running delivering to Regina, which is 15 or 30 minutes away from our home place and uh, up to Saskatoon, which is two and a half hours away. We tried delivering to other places. It just didn't work out. Um, but we deliver right to people's front doors and it's me. I'm the delivery guy. There's nobody else that does it. Other Carmen will do it on occasion, but I'm the delivery guy. So people get to see me on social media. They get to see our, uh, I raise the cattle and, our biggest thing is we're selling you the animal from birth to butcher and I'm delivering it to your front door. And I think as the food movement changes 
And it's, it's, it's funny because after listening to your podcast and, and working cows, I'm realizing that what dad and I have been doing for 25 years is literally going to make us the OGs in the next five to 10 years. We will be at the forefront of an industry that I think has a downhill roll right now of a boulder and it's just going to pick up steam. I don't think there's any stop. I don't think you can stop the regenerative egg movement. I don't think you can stop the grass fed beef thing. Um, I, up until literally until really going down the rabbit hole of regenerative egg in the last year or so, and I'm, I'm not knocking conventional ranching. I, as a, as a former cattle buyer and my dad being a cattle buyer and being in the bull business, I'm not knocking conventional ranching. I think there's a place for it. I think it works. I don't think anybody can change what they do overnight, but this is the future. And I finally, Carmen's realized this a long time ago that regenerative ag and regenerative ranching and the way we do things and knowing consumers, knowing where their food comes from and having that story behind their food is the future. I thought, okay, it's going to be a niche market for us. It's going to be the future. It's, it's, it's unstoppable. I, I, I was listening. I, I, I'm about a year behind on your podcast. I'm listening to your, your, I think I'm mid February of last year right now. Okay. And um, you had said, somebody had said like, all we need is 3% of the population to take on something. And it's, you can't stop it. It's an unstoppable force. I don't know if we're at 3% in direct to consumer beef sales or regenerative ag. We're close. I, I think we're, we're, we're close. We're Very so, close. so close that we're going to hit it and keep going. And we constantly, I, I, I'm anti, I was anti TikTok. I'm still anti TikTok. We've only been on it for about six months. Um, and it was at the, at the behest of our, we, we hired a social media management company to help us, to guide us where to go. And he's like, you got to get on TikTok. You got to get on TikTok. So we downloaded TikTok, scrolled through it for a day. And I wanted to just make, pull my eyes out. Like it's literally just the stupidest thing I think on most platforms, most things, but it introduced me to a group of you guys, regenerative egg guys that I never thought would be on TikTok. And we've literally from posting about bale grazing and our beef boxes and stuff, they don't get so much traction on the, on the beef side of things, but posting about regenerative egg, I've got guys daily reaching out now like when's your bull sale we're having our first bull sale here in march online bull sale we've always sold off the farm finally said we got to pull the pin and, and have an online sale so i get messages like, when are you selling bulls where can i get your bulls where can i see your bulls i never thought tiktok would be where we'd sell bulls i never thought that it would be forage raised genetics that were going to excel on tiktok i thought we were going to be doing beef stuff and a back door window to the ranch I, it it's interesting that perspective is very interesting. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't like TikTok probably a whole lot more than you do. I think it, it's a huge time suck and there's a lot of stuff on there that's not worth looking at. But I've been <laughs> on, I mean, I've had my Red Hills Rancher page since 2014 on Facebook. And the struggle to reach outside of your demographic that, that the algorithm silos you into on legacy platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, like to break out of that, it's almost impossible. Like, and, and I'm 99% sure that it's structured because Facebook wants you to spend money pay to play boost ads to break out of that. TikTok doesn't have that. 
And what I found on TikTok, as long as you're not trying to drive traffic off the platform, you can talk about whatever you want to talk about. And if it's a if it's something good and catchy, you'll get views. You'll get views, you'll get likes, you'll get comments. And I it, if I make a TikTok and I I say the word podcast, it'll get 500 views. If I make the same TikTok and I don't say the word podcast, it'll get 10, it'll get five or 10 times the views. It's strange. Like I, I swear that they're transcribing and reading everything that we say on that platform and their algorithm is making a decision on, on whether we're going to be boosted or be on the for you page or whether we're going to be shadow banned. Yeah. And it's, it's becoming very apparent. And I think Elon, even Elon Musk even said this in the last week or two, since he's bought Twitter that he, he like they're trying to clamp down driving traffic off that platform and i get it it's just business if i had a social media platform and somebody was using it to say hey go listen to my you know go check out my website go check out my website hey you know i'm a businessman too you're using my stuff to drive business i want a taste of that yeah. okay it's, i get it yeah i get it and it sucks because like we when we started this business in the fall of 2020, we were doing really well on Facebook. Like Facebook, it's Facebook's only really changed in the last, I think in the last year. The pay-to-play model, like we don't even our social media guide, like our guy company that's guiding us, they're like, we're not even worried about Facebook anymore. But the sad thing is when I look at our Shopify sales results we have to pay to play on Facebook, but that's where most of our business is driving from. Instagram's good. TikTok's minuscule, but we haven't really focused on TikTok ads or boosting posts on TikTok. That's one thing we're, we're slowly working on, but I hate the social media, but it's, it's giving our customers a window into what we do. And I never thought I'd be doing bail grazing videos on TikTok. I, my plan on TikTok was just to do like, Hey, they moving the cows today. Hey, we're, you know, cows are calving now. And people, our customers want to see that. But the majority of our followers now are ranchers, especially people moving towards regenerative or wanting our genetics or, you know, wanting to troll us. Like there's, there's those trolls that, you know, they're going to fall. Like you said, you know, that it's, you got a free space in their head all the time. And yeah. I don't care about the trolls. I, I wanted to engage them in the beginning and just fight them on stuff. Now I just let them troll. I don't even bother with them anymore. But that's the kind of people we're seeing on TikTok. But I I wish these platforms would change. Um, but our customers are asking us now, like, can we get a tour of your ranch? Can we stop in? I got one customer. She's been with me for 10 years. She wants a picture of every cow she buys. Every animal I butcher for her, she wants a picture of that animal or a video. I would never want to see that. Like I, I do, like I get where she's coming from, but I like that our customers trust us because there's, we don't, we don't put anything into our beef that we wouldn't eat ourselves. So if we got a cow that literally just needs to be put down and let the ground take her, that's what we'll do. Like there's, I like that our customers trust us, but there, I, I think there's some that have been burned, you know, got an old cow. We, we get that comment all the time. Oh, I'm pretty sure I got an old cow once. Did you, or, you know, was the animal not aged properly? Was it not butchered properly? So like, that's why we do, we do 21 days standard. My dad's always done 21 days, um, a dry aging. And I have to, I have fought every single butcher I've ever gone to 
to get 21 days. They will, they will fight you till they have they're blue in the face that seven days is enough. And it's not. And I, if they would just sit down and have a 21 day age stake versus a seven day age stake, they will never go back to seven day aging, but they want that turnaround in their coolers and their turnaround in their business. And I get that. So the finding a budget money. Yeah. It freezer space costs money, but, and, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to say how much money we've given to some of these butchers, but we've, we're doing well. Like I, we're doing about 75 head a year through our store and through halves and quarters and beef boxes. And that's going to just keep it, keep increasing. So if as a small abattoir in our area, 75 head from one operation, that's a big chunk of change. So if a guy is doing something that's working, why not put in a second rail or have an area designated for him? Anything like, well, so we've, we've had to switch butchers twice now um, since we started one butcher. I just did not feel comfortable selling meat to somebody that came out of that place. And the last butcher, you know, we were doing great. And then one day we get a text message, Hey, you can age seven to 10 days, but we won't do 21 anymore. We just can't do it. Well, okay. Well, that, I guess we're going like, I'm, I'm not sticking around. I'm not, I'm not compromising what we do as a standard practice for you to have a bigger turnaround I'm, I'm sorry we'll find somebody else so right now we're driving three hours we got to drive three hours now with a stock trailer and cattle on to take them to where the butcher we're at now they're doing a hell of a job they know how to and one, one thing i just realized here is not every butcher can cut a 21 day animal not every butcher knows how to deal with that bark and that you know if you got that slime or grime or whatever they want to call it on that animal it's aged 21 days or your, your cooler's not set that you do get slime and grime on an animal. And then, then your cooler's not set, right? These are things that I'm learning as I go, because I was spoiled. Like growing up, we had a butcher here about 30 minutes away from town, did everything I wanted, did everything I asked. The, the quality was, this, it was always consistent. Your, every animal, every cut, always the same, packaged the same, looked the same. Then they retired. Because <laughs> there's, they can't find anybody. And I, I'm, I'm, I don't know if you have the same problem down there, but up here, nobody wants to do butchering. No, the, it's, it's too hard. It's, it's too much work. I, I think that's how we lost all of our meat plants in the eighties, early nineties is those guys just aged out and there wasn't anybody to replace them. So instead of, you know, instead of struggling, they just quit. And I, I, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. I don't, you know, I, we're about the same age and finding the guys that, you know, that lived through, you know, the consolidation era in the eighties and early nineties that ran meat plants and getting them to open up and, you know, talk about, you know, tell us what happened. I don't know. And it's, it just seems to me like, you know, as their business, you know, started to decrease a little bit, they felt a little bit of pressure from the new mega plants being built. You know, like the big, uh, all the big Tysons and IBPs building those, you know, four, five, six thousand head a day lines. You know, I'm sure those little guys felt the pressure. You know, yep. they saw stuff go from, you know, a hundred a month to eighty a month, then to you know seventy, then to sixty. Well, it doesn't sound that bad, but you know, if you're trying to run a business with five or six people and you're counting on killing a hundred a month, right? If ten percent of those don't show up. 
that's a huge problem for the guy around a slaughterhouse. That's a problem for the guys on the cut floor because they're not going to be busy. That's a guy for the that's a problem for the guy that's got to sell it, you know, on the retail or wholesale side because the supply's not there. Like running like everybody else since COVID hit. I looked at what would it take to get a packing plant running? And I had, I had a phone call with my friend, Mike Calicrate. Uh, it was probably early April of 2020. And he said it would have been a good bet to build a packing plant and start then. And I don't think he'd be wrong. I'm just not the guy to run one. Nope. I know I'm not the guy to run one. Nope. Same here. And so and and then it becomes a problem of scale like okay how many are we going to kill how many do we need to kill what are we going to serve and i guess where i'm going with this is uh the area that i'm at we've got there there is one packing plant in the county and it's a usda plant and it's kind of on the far end it takes me almost an hour to get there i've had stuff killed down there not a huge fan well, over the course of, of, of COVID over the last two years, um, I have an eye doctor friend. And I'm not sure if it was, if I had anything to do with it at all, but I remember, you know, going to him and talking about a meat plant pretty early on with, you know, knowing kind of some ballparks of how much it would cost and what I wanted to do. And Doc's really taken the idea and run with it. Like he owns a ranch that's, we're not direct fence neighbors, but there's only one other property between me and him. So it's like his, his property is pretty close. Um, so he bought that years ago. Well, through COVID, he decided he was going to put a meat plant in town. And I drove by it yesterday, like all the outside's done. The fence is done. They're working on, on the inside, like, you know, massive, ref massive rack of refrigeration units, huge generator, like. Okay. And then I asked him the other day, um, cause I had to go in for an eye appointment. And I said, doc, when are you going to be open? He says, we're going to try to be open in April. So surprise, I guess, official announcement. Um, but he's going to try to be open in, in April of 22. And I said, well, how many are you going to process? And he said, well, we're going to start with, I don't know, four or five a week and try to build to 10 a week. Thinking, okay, that's not bad. And then I started doing the math. I'm like, 10 a week's only a, that's a two-man operation. Maybe three tops. And, okay. I mean, it, it, it's still, it's still three really high quality jobs that didn't exist in the community beforehand. And if we're talking about 10 animals a week, you know, that's all, that's all outflows that would normally be going to a sale barn in another county or to a packing plant in another county. And we're going to keep that here and we're going to pay those three guys and we're going to pay them well. So even though it might not be, you know, it's not a mega plant, it's not going to be any risk of being taken over by Tyson or Cargill. And I don't think it's going to be, it's not a whole lot bigger than what we need just for our local community. And I think that's about a right sized plant. Now, whether it's right sized from an economic and business standpoint, I don't know. I hope it works. And I wish them all the success in the world. But it, it's just, you know, we had a, we had a group of guys that aged out at a time when we were all being told, get big or get out. Not we, I mean, we were still kids, but our dads were getting told 
get big or get out. And at least that was a sentiment down here in the early eighties, the, the, you know, the Earl butts thing. And yeah, there's a point where you need to keep scaling and growing, but there's also a point where it's like, okay, where do we stop? You know, do we stop at our community? Do we stop at, at the, at the territory border? Like you want to do all Saskatchewan goods in your store. Totally respect that. I think that's awesome. And I wish we had more of that, you know, down here and everywhere that, you know, people were trying to promote goods that were from their area and not support things like Dollar General and Walmart and buy our food from multinational corporations that only exist and make huge profits because of subsidies. Yep. Okay. Rant over. I want to hear more about uh, you and your wife, you and Carmen's journey towards better health through food and how you discovered that. Yeah. So when I was working shift or, and anybody who works shift work knows it's hard on your body. It's hard on your health. You eat a lot of crap because that's, what's easy. And before, just before I met actually towards the end of my marriage, I had already started kind of losing weight. I, I hit like, I'm six, four. Wow. Six, four on paper. I'm six, three, um, 200. I got to, to 250 pounds. I was a big dude for my body type. I'm usually a bean pole, just tired. What's that? You look shorter on camera. Oh yeah. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> much shorter on camera. Um, so I hit 250. I look back at pictures called the fat Carter phase. And, uh, there's not many pictures. They don't exist. Um, they just kind of no. I just hid from the public back then, but I got real big, real unhealthy. Um, so I, now first thing I did was I cut out beer and I hadn't met Carmen yet, but I cut out beer. I'd, I'd come home from work, come home from ranching, put the kids to bed, spend time with the wife, whatever. She'd go to bed early and I'd go downstairs, crack a beer every day. And that, that in inflammation on your body i'd never thought about it that way like how much water weight you're carrying around just an inflammation and and uh so i stopped drinking beer started losing a little bit of weight and then got divorced and all of a sudden you're on the you're on the social media or on the dating apps and you know you're just this big fat single dad and i met carmen i think i had already lost about 40 pounds by the time I met Carmen. Did you catfish old picture? What's that? Did you catfish her with an old picture? No, I didn't. If I showed her an old picture, she would have ran. Um, so, and Carmen has never been overweight. She will say she was fat. She's when I met her, she was at the heaviest she'd ever been. Most beautiful woman I ever met. So, um, I met her. I'd already dropped 40 pounds just from not drinking beer and from um, working out a little bit. I wasn't working out a lot. I was working out a little bit. Met Carmen. We dated for a bit and we were, she was, had healed her body through, um, eating grass fed, eating organic, um, gluten-free, you know, taking probiotics, taking all your, the health supplements that I was always told. My ex-wife was a personal trainer. And all of these bodybuilders that she was friends with, like, oh, you know, putting putting a daily vitamin into your body, that's just expensive piss. Like, that's you're just wasting your money. And I, I thought that way. And uh, 
you know, I'd, I'd always ate grass fed beef. I was raised on grass fed beef. That's all we had. We never had grain fed beef. You're not going to, you know, you got a fat steer that you maybe breaks a leg and goes to the butcher and you'll take that out of the feedlot, but you got good grain fed beef that's going on the truck and you're getting stuck with the old cow that, you know, you can't ship to the auction mark. So I was raised on grass fed beef. So, um, Carmen and I, after we broke up, I realized that she was right about a lot of things when it came to eating. So I stopped drinking, um, completely for a long time. Um, we had both started working out hardcore, really doing, focusing on strength training, not on, I, I was always, Oh, you gotta, you gotta lift weights, but you gotta do cardio. You gotta lift weights, but you gotta do cardio. So I started focusing on just, just heavy, just weights, heavy weights consistently, frequently. And I dropped down just through diet, um, and eating healthy, um, knowing where your food came from. We, we even, we eat even healthier now than when we lost all this weight, but our food journey, I just realized that, uh, I was tired and exhausted and Carmen was eating gluten-free. So I started eating gluten-free and just the sheer inflammation in your body goes away from eating gluten-free, um, eating farm-raised food and food that's raised regeneratively. You, you just feel your body. You feel different. You, your, your body feels different. You, your mindset's different. You're clear headed. Um, and I dropped down my, I think my smallest was like 175 pounds. And like, that's where my, that's where my body and my weight, I was just honed. <laughs> I'm not that anymore. Let's say that. Um, and Carmen, Carmen was just ripped, absolutely ripped from working out and focusing on diet and focusing on what you're putting in your body and eating lots of green food or not. I'm very anti-organic. I will, I'm, I'm anti-organic on the organic industry. Um, we've raised natural cattle for 25 years. We haven't put an implant into our cattle since the late nineties. Um, there hasn't been an implant. Is that because of the label and like the, the, the greenwashing of the label? The greenwashing. And I have sold cattle into natural programs where the guy you'd fill out the affidavits and you know, we check off the boxes and we do this and we do this and we do these are, these are our protocols. And then the guy that buys those cattle tells you over the phone, Oh, these are all, these are almost organic. You're okay. But they're not. Well, I can put them in my organic program. What? Yeah. They're, they're essentially organic. Well, no, we're not organic. I'm not certified. Yeah. We are organic to a point, but we still use vaccines. Um, you know, we still use pour on, um, that's not organic. Well, it it works for my organic program. Oh, so that was that was my first. Okay, what's going on with this? And then, you know the. I think I know a guy. I think there's a lot of cheating. Oh, in the organic, in the gap programs. Yeah. And it, okay, somebody's probably going to come after me for saying that, but let let let's be real, like there are people that cheat those programs 100%. 100%. And it's not always the it's not always the rancher, it's not always the producer. It's the feedlot sometimes, it's the middleman, it's the buyer, it's the owner. It, it might not even be the feedlot. It might be the owner of those cattle feeding those cattle for that program at that feedlot that is cheating. And that really turned me against the organic industry um and I know of people that are certified organic grain guys and you know, their, their crops have failed or there's, you know, they got hailed out or there was a drought 
and they're phoning their relatives saying, hey, do you got any peas for sale? What are you asking for them? Well, you know, they're not organic. Oh, you know, I'm just, I'm just, what would you sell them for? And then buying semi loads of peas, whole bin loads of peas to put into their organic program because they're short on their contracts. And there's no, the certification to be certified organic is stringent, but is there any, you know, there's auditing, but that doesn't mean they're going to find anything. And it, I'm just very, even the, even the grass fed thing, we advertise grass fed because I do not feel comfortable telling my customers that they're grass finished. And the only reason I say that is because we give oats or pea pellets at some points in the year or at some points in their lifespan. So like as calves, the cow, the, the, the calves come off the cow in October, they go into our <clears throat> feedlot and they'll get a forage based ration, which is just usually hay or green feed, but there is green and there's green in that green feed. I don't feel that that is a grass finished product because there's grain in that green feed. I do not feel comfortable telling my customers they're getting a grass finished product because at some point in that animal's lifespan, you know, but there are, and I'm not going to say who it is because they'll come after me and I've sold cattle into this program and I still sell cattle into this program. Their grass fed, you know, program stated that the cat or grass finished program was that these cattle were grass finished for 180 days. Well, they couldn't find enough cattle. So then it's 90 days and then it's 60 days. And now they're down to 30 days in order to be a grass finished product to go into this big chain, 30 days, 30 days on grass. So you could take a bunch of fat steers or fat cows, green fed in a feedlot, and then dump them out on your pasture for 30 days and boom, you can go into this program and get 10 cents above market price on these call cows. Hey, where do I sign up? Exactly. It's nuts. And it, it, I use the program. I, I, we don't, I shouldn't say we use, we use the program. We're at the point now where all of our off aged heifers, all of our call cows, all of our call bulls, all of the bulls that don't make the sale or as yearlings, we've decided aren't going to be, you know, continue on as a two-year-old bull. They all go through the store. We're at the point now between dad and I, well, I shouldn't say dad and I, dad still got to ship a few loads of cows here and there, depending on, you know, what the market's doing, but we're at the point where we don't have to take anything to, a, to an auction market anymore. And well, the only thing we sell is our steer calves. And there's not very many of them. Cause you know, we're, we're keeping all of our heifers back to raise females. We're keeping the best bull calves back to be forage raised Hereford bulls. And then the steers that, that are really good, fit in with dad's calves so and we keep all the dinks like all the little dinky calves that you know you got those fall born i don't know if you have the problem but up here i find fall born calves are just pot belly little hairballs that don't amount to nothing so we end up keeping them and then they go into they get grass fed and go into the store so we don't have to ship anything to the auction mart i'm not a i'm a price maker not a price taker um that's our that's our motto with i tell all of our customers and they don't get it um that like it's a it's a model that I know what it, what it means, but a lot of people outside of the egg industry don't. So like we're price makers. We're not price takers anymore. Even our bulls, like we, this year we'll be price takers because we're doing an online bull sale, but I've got a floor price that if those bulls don't meet that floor price, I might as well put them through the store as grass fed beef because this is what they're worth to me. You might not see the value as a rancher in that, but that's what they're worth to me. So essentially, yeah, we are price makers and I just, I, that's, that, that, that's why I'm jaded towards the grass fed and grass finished and the organic and the, 
even certified Angus beef, I think it's a joke. If it's got a black hide, it goes certified Angus beef. And there is not a black animal with Angus left in it on our place. And those fat steers will go certified Angus beef. My problem with the certified Angus beef program is the guy that gets to pass them into that program or not never gets to see what color the hide is. So he doesn't know. He's just looking at a carcass and passing it in on carcass traits. And they got to take, you know, again, there's got it there. I know there's cheating. I've had people tell me that have seen it firsthand that that program is cheated constantly. But, and, and I'm sure somebody will write in and say, oh, no, that's it. The program says this, 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 and this. Okay. Where do they take the hide off? Does a record of that hide color go with that carcass to the guy that passes it into the program on the other side of the plant? I don't think so. And I, I, I don't know everything about everything. I'm actually one of the most uneducated people when it comes to the egg industry. Like I know what I know and I know what works for us. I know it works on our ranch. I know what we do and why we do it. But I feel that coming from a, as a former cattle buyer, and having a father who's a cattle buyer from being in the feedlot business, running a feedlot and seeing these different programs in different parts of the industry, it really makes you jaded. If you've got any kind of moral compass really makes you jaded. And it's one of the reasons I didn't want to buy cattle anymore. Number one, I didn't want to sit in an auction barn all day. Yeah. Some days you buy nine loads and some days you buy nine head. I didn't want to do that anymore. And then we kind of move towards direct farm. Like da da everything dad does now is direct farm sales. Um, like he goes right to your ranch, videos your calves, takes pictures of your calves, puts them on the internet sale for team, for team auctions. I'll, I'll give them a shout out. It's a great platform. It's a great program run by great people. So dad's a rep for team auctions. Um, and more cattle are being direct marketed up here. I don't know about down there, but the auction marts are going the way of the dodo, but that was one of the reasons I stopped buying cattle is just seeing what is done in this industry and going on to guys ranches, you know, bull breeders going onto their ranches and seeing their commercial cow herd and, and then seeing their purebred cow herd. And then knowing that I will never buy a bull off that guy again, like stuff like that really, really jades in. That was one of the reasons that, you know, I don't want to deal with this anymore. I just want to run my own cows and run them the way I want to run them and run grass fed genetics and, and focus on that. And it's a, I, I think the, 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 con, the conventional ranch and feedlot guys have a, have a hard hill to climb here now in the next five to 10 years. Um, a lot of guys are doing things right, but there's a lot of guys doing things wrong. And I don't think we're ever going to get rid of conventional ranching. Um, the bull, like the bull business, I don't agree with January, February calving and selling bulls to a guy that's calving in May and June. Like that, that doesn't work. You know, you, you, that's why we raise our own bulls. We don't, I did bring in a bull last year off of an, from an outfit that I respect and I know their cow herd inside and out. I know how they run their cows. Yeah. They don't do what I do, but it's genetics that I really wanted. It'll be one of the last bulls I ever buy because he's a great bull and he'll have great females, but I want to focus on line breeding my own forage raised genetics I might come down to your country one day because there is a guy down here, your way I'd love to visit, D. Wall Herefords at, 
yeah, I can't remember where D Wolves are at now. He's in Coldwater. They're like it's like Coldwater. miles away. I've yeah, known Coldwater, Kansas. Yep. I've known Mike and his family for a long time. And if I was gonna buy a Hereford, I would buy them for I would buy it from Mike D. Wall. Yep. Per- Fairy Carpenter. I'm pretty sure Fairy Carpenter. No, Franklin Nash is her is her dad, Franklin Nash. Yeah. But yeah. he same thing. He he was one of those guys that sent cows up into the mountains. And whatever came out, came out. And like they've been line breeding that cow herd for I don't know how many years that's been a how many decades it's been a closed herd, but they have I've been wanting to get down to your country and it's uh, and do a bull tour down that down there. I I've always wanted to go to Van Newkirk's. I don't know if you know they're in Nebraska, D Wall Herefords in Kansas. There, there's uh, I think it's Gunderson's. Gunderson Herefords. I think it's Gunderson's. I've always been curious about different Hereford herds. And, and I've changed. There's a lot of Hereford guys that I wanted to see growing up that I probably will never go there just based on my thoughts on cattle and their thoughts on cattle and where this industry is going. And we had, I just think you should focus on re, like, like it says in, I think it's Ranch and Profit that says like you raise cattle where you're located. You buy bulls from your climate. I'd love to look into Mashonas. I'm, I'm, I've gone down the rabbit hole of talking to Hobbs about Mashonas. Um, I don't think that's a good answer for you. No, but I would love to try Mashonas. There's a guy, I guess, in Washington doing Mashonas on Angus, having really good luck. I've been looking at the Mashona cattle fair, uh, pharaohs have. Don't know if I'd ever buy anything from there, but it's something to think about. And I love the idea of those the 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 TikToks that Hobbs have been posting of how fat those Mashona bulls are. I would love those kind of the genetics. Like when I was, and this is going to be a, this might be a long story and way down the rabbit hole, but you know about ten years ago, I really wanted to do beefalo. I really thought that Dad and I were always we've been fo- we've been focused on forage raised genetics for twenty years now, and we tried you know, different Hereford bulls didn't work out. Turns out most of the Hereford cattle in this country aren't suited for forage raised genetics. So we've started breeding our own and, and line breeding those cattle. And then I used to have purebred Welsh black cattle. So Welsh black cattle are from Wales. They are the hardiest, thickest hide, longest. They're almost like a Highland, but not quite the long hair, but they've got a very thick hide. And it was when we had purebred um, Welsh blacks, you'd have your Angus cows, Minus 40 with the wind in the winter. Angus cows are hiding in the trees, all humped up, not coming out to graze. You got the Hereford cows kind of grazing around where the wind protection is. And you got those Welsh block cows up on a hill facing into the wind, digging through three feet of snow, flipping these giant snow chunks out of the way and digging for grass. And I thought that was amazing. And we focused on these Welsh black bulls on our Hereford cows for that black brockle face female. But it got to the point that I was the youngest Welsh black breeder at 35, and the next guy closest to me in age was almost 70. And the full-blood Welsh black genetics had really bad bags and really bad feet. So finding genetics that worked for me was hard to find. And the one guy who had the genetics decided to get out of the cattle business, dispersed his herd. They went commercial. His genetics are gone. He had perfect feet, perfect udders, amazing cow herd. But we thought if we could take a Hereford Welsh black female. And then if you had a fortune to spend on getting a bison herd of Plains Woodcross bison cows, 
taking those Plains Woodcross genetics and getting that bred to a, a continental breed, like a Galvey that had the milking ability and Galveys do well up in this country with fleshing and, and their udders, but they're still a continental breed that can't handle the winters like a British breed does up here. British breeds flourish in this climate. Continental breeds are good, you know, terminal cross. But Galveys have almost everything going on. And a lot of the continental breeds have changed. You know, Semitals are doing better with different things, but they've brought in a lot of Angus. You know, the, the Galvey breeds brought in a lot of Angus. There was no such thing as a black Galvey. Now there's black, there's black everything. There's black Charlays, for God's sake. There's, there's guys up here in the Hereford business fighting for, you know, Blackfords. Like, come on, like, just get over the Angus thing. It's done. Hey, you so, see what I've got. <laughs> oh, I see what you got. <laughs> yeah I, I know i've i've thought about corrientes up here but they'd die <laughs> first first winter they would probably die 40 below is not ideal um no. especially if you do what i did and you go down to south texas and buy sale barn cattle mm-hmm. they're probably not going to do well your first winter it'll be um what did you say it'll be a wreck, <laughs> a wreck. Yep. i mean even my hereford cows that i bought out of southern alberta they're for, it took them five winters here to get to the point where they could handle our climate and and winter grays and stockpile grays and i've still got four or five of those cows left that i haven't called and they are still the skinniest cows on the place because they cannot acclimatize fast enough to this climate and that's only eight hours away in southern but they get such nice chinook weather down in in southern alberta that you know they're spoiled so i thought if we could take a welsh black hereford cross female breed that animal to a Galvey beefalo cross combine those so you could get rid of and the problem is with with the beefalo you're looking at like 75 percent sterile animals in your first cross uh, and maybe even that many in your second cross so it would, it would be a very expensive venture i sat down hours talking to dad about this as we checked pastures and he'd just shake his head the whole time like you don't have that kind of money you're gonna go broke where do you think this is going to happen? Like our cows see bison over the fence and they run. We've had bison at the feedlot and the cows run the opposite way. Like you got to raise them up as yearlings together and blah, blah, blah. I thought if we could create a, a bison based breed and bring that here and it didn't look like a Buffalo. And there was a breed in the States and I can't find anything on it anymore, but I, I stumbled upon a website in my early twenties and it was a black breed that had was like one eighth bison or one quarter bison didn't look like bison at all and i can't remember where they went or if they just the guy went broke but i thought if we could have the hardiness of a bison man we could change things and gave up on that dream started focusing on the forage raised her for genetics because that's what works in our country that's what works in this climate and it's in my blood i can't i'm third generation and i swore i'd get out of herfords and i just can't do it <laughs> they're just especially once you find Herefords that work and yeah, it's, I'd love to try the Mashonas and, and even you bringing up semen and AIing to Mashona, just seeing what they do. If they could gain like those cattle that Hobbs has down there, that'd be insane. I, I It's an, okay. So, you know, we, we, we talk about that you want to buy a bull from as close as you can, from as similar as, as an operation as you can. Right. You know, we can agree on that. Yeah. But putting that into practice is really hard. Like, okay, um, there's a big Angus breeder about 50 miles straight west of me, Gardner Angus. You might have heard of him. 
Oh, yeah. I like Mark. I like their family. I don't think there's ever going to be a bull wearing a GAR brand on my ranch. Yeah. As long as I'm alive. Yeah. Okay. I got to go past D wall Herfers to get over to, to, to get over to gardeners. Yeah. And if I got to go past D walls with my checkbook and a trailer and I'm on a bull buying mission, I'm not going to make it to gardeners because that's where we're going to stop. We're going to stop. And we're going to bring one of D walls home. Yeah. I, I question like a lot of bull breeders, you know, and we talk about transparency about, you know, being able to come to the ranch, you know, some of your customers will want to come to the ranch. You mentioned you had one lady that was like, send me pictures of all the cows you kill for me. And that kind of transparency and traceability is something that the industry is severely lacking. Oh, you don't, it's, 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 it's horrible. And as a, as a purebred guy, anybody, I, can, I, don't, I don't even want to identify as a purebred breeder, honestly. Like, cause it, he, I had a guy the other day, well, not the other day, but a month ago, I said like, I got 10 and 11 year old bulls at my customer's place. He said, why would you do that? You're breeding yourself out of business. Well, what do you mean? He's like, well, the, you know, X breed and X breed down the road from me, they're selling bulls to a guy that lasts two years you know, their guts burn out, their feet burn out, they fall apart. That breeder curses them up and down for being horrific cattle. But then he goes back, keeps buying bulls from the year after year after year after year, and nobody learns anything. And that's what we're seeing in this purebred business. And it, it just jades me in the wrong way. If I buy a bull from you that doesn't last two years, I'm never going to buy another bull from you. Exactly. And that's the way I stand. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, $5,000 for a bull right? $5,000 for a bull. Then you get some of these breeders that are like, oh, well, you know, it'll only cover 25 cows. You're, you're going to tell me that I, you, I'm going to buy a $5,000 bull that's going to breed 25 cows. That Those numbers don't work. A $5,000 bull better be breeding 50 cows. See, and we can't run those numbers up here. We're like 25 to 30 to a bull, roughly. Just based on the ground. I guess that's everybody, everybody up here kind of runs 25 to 30. We've have like I've got one my old eleven year old herd sire he's bred fifty and he easily, but that was staggered breeding seasons and I would try it but I'm scared of open because up here at the it and and my common knowledge and what I was taught was twenty five to thirty cows of a bull best conception rates and I know a longhorn bulls that'll cover I've seen I've seen longhorn bulls break into my pasture and cover fifteen cows in a day. <laughs> before you can get them pulled out so i don't know I, i've heard lots of guys running big numbers but up here it's kind of the going thing is 25 to 30 well and i'll be honest 25 30 is about what it is down here um i'm more aggressive than that but i also can i i also feel like i want to be able to take a you know i can deal with a higher open percentage because i can just get rid of those like yeah it's true trying to trying to push and push hard because i'm not where you are yet i don't have my my whole herd genetics isn't where i want it yet i still have years to go to build my program to get what i'm really after well i'm not there yet i'm not even close <laughs> i've got i have a long hold long road to hoe like we're we're just tipping the iceberg i've literally it's only the last year that we've really jumped down this rabbit hole of regenerative stuff. And really only the last 
five months that I've started listening to your guys' podcast and really just like everything's just flipped on its head kind of deal. Okay. I, I've, I've screwed up. I'll admit I've, I've made a mistake. So my recording, my memory card is flashing at me, telling me we only have about 20 minutes left before it is done and going to cut yeah. off. So um, I want to know about your winter feed program. I want to know about your forage cycle, how you get, how you can feed cow, how your, uh, I want to know your forage chain and, and your feeding out of cattle and how you're getting through the winter in Saskatchewan when it's 20 below zero with feet of snow on the ground. I want to know how you're not going out every day and spending a fortune feeding your cows. So let's talk about, let's talk about your winter feeding program where you get to feed and how the cows get it. So we have always bought feed. Um, our feedlot sits on 260 acres of pasture. That is all we have. When we built that feedlot, the plan was to buy some land around us to put up silage. Never came to fruition. Land prices just going through the roof. We can't buy anything down there anymore at all. So we've always bought feed. We buy feed for our feedlot. We buy feed for our cow herd. On occasion, like this past year, like we did almost 1,600 acres of hay because we had so much grass and we decided not to custom graze anymore. And our cow herd numbers, our, our grass management has slowly gotten better and better. We, we have a long way to go to get better grass management. Um, but we buy hay. And I could never understand until the last few years why. It used to bug me that dad wouldn't just buy some hay equipment. My, my problem is I can't cut hay. I can't sit in a tractor and bale. My allergies are so bad, I would almost die. So that was one of the main reasons we started buying feed. Dad doesn't have time. I can't do it. Equipment's expensive. Fuel's expensive. Depreciation on equipment. And you can always find a guy who doesn't figure in any of his costs, who thinks that his hay is worth this much. So up until the last three years, the last three years, hay's been stupid, like 240 bucks a ton, 180 bucks a ton, and about 140 bucks a ton the year, the three years ago. But before that, we our 15-year average is 60 bucks a ton delivered to the yard. And we can't put up hay for that. I can't own the land for that. I can't own the tractors. I can't hire somebody. I can't put fuel through that tractor. And I, I do not want to spend my whole summer cutting hay, putting up hay. And you get one ring and your hay goes black. And it's moldy, it's garbage, you might as well just leave it out there. You, you're, you're screwed. Whereas buying our own feed, we can pick dairy quality hay if we want. If if oats are cheap or barley's cheap or wheat is cheap, we can buy grain and feed straw. Like there's there's always better options to buy in your own feed and let somebody else who's putting up that feed not know their costs and think they're making money because they're not. If they sat down and figured in one thing we've always been consistent at is our land company owns the land. Our cow company owns the cows. Our feedlot company owns the feedlot. The, the cattle feeding company owns the cattle in the feedlot. The cattle buying company is separate. And all of those companies spread their costs across to each other. So, you know, yeah, our cows probably aren't making money, but we love our cows and our cows are paying rent on land that's making money. So the way we figure it is, like even this hay we put up this year, we didn't turn a wheel. We hire somebody to cut it. We hire somebody to bale it because it costs us, I think this year was 15 bucks an acre to cut it and 15 bucks a bale to bale it. And we averaged, this year sucked. We only did about 1.5 bales an acre. 
Um, but it's still cheaper to do that and then hire a bale picking truck with one of those self-loading bale picking trucks to come and pick those bales. And then this year we actually got intelligent and finally listened to Steve Canyon. What he's been, I've been seeing his Facebook for years is that you haul those bales right to where they're going to be. And so he drops those bales in 17 bale groups. And then this year I went out there and placed them all on 40 foot centers and did enough bales in a group um, for, for a week of grazing for each group of cows. we got our young cows separate and our old cows separate. And our old cows just started getting bales this week. Um, they were grazing, stockpile grazing until this week. So we've always fed that you take your bales out once a week. And we, we've, we've bale grazed for, for on and off for 10 years now. And swath grazing on every other year. We don't feed every day. We don't have time. Our cows are 45 miles away. They don't come home. They, they calve up there, they winter up there, we feed them up there, they graze up there, we process them up there, we haul the open cows out, the calves out, and we go up there once a day during calving. Like during calving, I go up and check the cows for three hours, come home. I don't spend all day up there. I don't go out, check the cows in the middle of the night. That What's the point? So I, I've got other things it. to do. Exactly. I got a business to run. Dad's got a cattle buying business to run. And we're rotational grazing, so we've got other stuff to do. And we like our time with our family. So that's big for us. So then we put those bales out on 30 foot, on 40 foot centers. Um, this year we, fi we finally set things up the way it should be that we, everything's done in the fall. So that all dad's got to do is go out there and move fence, or I got to go out there and move fence or open a gate into another field. And for stockpile grazing, um, we've always had the, dad's always had the understanding that for every day you stay off the grass in the spring is another week you get in the fall. We don't do that anymore. Um, this will be the first year this spring that we're, we're going to start calving the minute the grass turns green, start calving them, moving them fast. We've always let a stockpile build up, but then that stockpile has kind of bit us in the ass come August. You've got that metal brome gets in their eyes and, you know, causes issues, causes some lumps, um, you know, get the awns and stuff and off certain grasses. So we're going to rotate them faster this year. We're going to rotate starting May 7th, but then, the previous years we start rotating the first of June. We rotate after kind of calvings come to a slowdown. Um, we'll graze them through in a big group of the, the young cows and the old cows in two separate groups of about 250 head. Um, and then my cows separate in a group of about a, a hundred or so. And we'll graze them um, till you no, know, probably first week of July. We'll do branding, break them into the herd groups. Cause we've got, you know, our, our Hereford cows get bred South Devon. Um, our South Devon Hereford cross cows get bred Semmental. We've got our purebred herds that stay, you know, different sires and different groups get stayed separate. So we break all that up at branding time, brew them into their groups, and then they'll keep rotating through the ranch. And then calves are weaned in October, and we will put all the cows back together, and the grass that we haven't touched or the grass that we've, you know, it's on their 45-day rest, we'll start grazing through that. And then we have about 10% native prairie. Um, we won't graze that till fall. We essentially use that as standing hay and they'll go on that. Like we just came off the native prairie now and they'll dig through the snow for that stuff. We do a bit of swath grazing. This year's swath grazing, our germination sucked. Um, we only had like 25% germination on uh, crown millet and Japanese millet. The stuff that did germinate looked really good. This is our first year doing Japanese and crown millet. In the past, we usually do oats and barley with uh, brassicas, certain clovers. Uh, oh, Japanese millet's been in there in the past for our cover cropping. 
and then we'll knock all that down and swath graze or depending on the year if it if it looks like the cows are going to have lots of grazing but we're going to need the bales we'll bring a baler in and get somebody to bale that up for us and haul that for bale grazing but we want to get to the point that there's a there's a purebred angus guy up here nervous brothers angus they do forage genetics they're putting 400 cows on bale grazing for the whole winter and they get all their bale grazing like they get every bale access to every bale for the whole winter and they've had really good luck so that's where i would like to get to i don't i don't know how they're doing it i want to go over there and see how they're doing it but if it works why not so my test my cows are the test dummies this year my purebred cows are the test dummies we're stockpile grazing on some ducks unlimited land that we graze very lightly through the summer with about 25 head and then we kick all the cows um, usually in there this year we put those 50 in there and I'm giving them just from Noble Research's TikToks, giving them a bale a week to kind of stimulate their rumen. That's one thing I'd never thought of. We'd, we'd always just toss those cows out onto the stockpile grass until the grass was gone. We, we didn't like to start feeding until feeding was needed. But I've looked at the condition of my cows is far superior than that of dad's cows and my commercial cows that are still doing the regular rotation through stockpile grass with no feed. Um, through the cold weather, We'll give them feed just to keep their body condition up. But my cows are getting the, a bale every seven days and then a bale every three days the last two weeks. And now I'm on full just because we got the deep snow got so deep and the, it's gotten so cold so fast, which we don't usually see in December. That's usually February kind of weather. Um, so now they're getting full bale grazing for a week at a time. And I'll just keep monitoring their condition, monitoring what's left for stockpile grass. And then these bales that I've hauled over to them because I've got their bales right where they are. So I just take them out, put them out a week at a time. Ten, I'm doing 10 days right now, actually. 10 days at a time. Make them, you know, eat what's there. If they clean it up, great. But they've got lots of stockpile to eat still. And they'll dig. Like, we've we've swathed. And lots of guys won't believe me and call bullshit. I don't care. This is what I've seen. We've swathed grazed in, in conditions where the snow is almost four feet thick. Three and a half, four feet thick. And we thought those swaths were lost. Like, we'll, we'll probably come back in the spring, graze them again. And... All of a sudden, the cows are clean up their swaths so they can easily access, and they're like a mi- piece of mining equipment. And you've got a cow with her head down, just throwing snow over her shoulders, digging, and you can't see the cow in that trench. And she'll dig a trench right through that drift over that lee of that hill, and dig that swath out of there. And cows are resourceful, and we got to let them be more resourceful. Like until we put this pasture pipeline system in for next winter, it'll be ready for next winter for water. Um, our cows eat snow. We don't break ice. I don't chop ice. They will in, in the fall when there's no snow, but the, the sloughs are frozen over, they'll find a beaver run and, or they'll find a place where they can push down on the ice with the weight of the cows and the water will come up through a crack in the ice. Our cows do not get access to water. They can do it on their own. You just got to let them do it and train them to do it. It's doable. You just got to, you got to try a lot of guys are like, oh, I'm going to break ice all winter. Why? They'll eat snow. Well, if you have snow all winter on the ground and you have water that's not in a tank, I mean. Yeah, or be- I love our beavers. Um, we have a lot. Like um, Ducks Unlimited figured at one time on our ranch, we had 1,000 beavers on 4,000 acres. Wow. I didn't realize it can be up to 12 to 15 beavers to a lodge. Yeah. I always thought there was one or two plus a couple babies. Um so they did a survey, aerial survey, and they figured with the active beaver lodges we had, 
We had almost a thousand beavers. So we, I hated beavers for a long time. Still do if there's that many of them. Um, we're down to probably 15 lodges on 4,000 acres now. And we'll keep it about that because they, if we, we noticed through the drought, the sloughs that didn't run out of water or the sloughs, our sloughs don't move. Like that's stale water that never moves. It's stagnant, but those sloughs didn't go dry because those beavers are packing the ground in that slough to stop the water from even evaporating below ground. And they're finding the deepest sloughs to live in and keeping those, those riparian areas healthy. And if we can keep the beavers, we have a lot of bush in our country and we were just sick of the beavers wiping out our bush, completely wiping it out to the point that we have quarters of land that have no wind protection at all left because the beavers have wiped them out. And you drive a tractor or a truck into one of those old sloughs to, you know, grab something and you puncture a beaver spike through a tire, tree spike through a tire. It ain't fun, but I, I see where they would work better in creeks and rivers. We don't have any creeks and rivers. We got stale stagnant sloughs. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, I've, I've talked about it before on the podcast that uh, the main creek that's on the east side of the ranch, there's two beaver colonies that live on it. And, you know, we're 20 plus months into the worst drought that anybody around can remember. and Probably that's ever going to be in the history books until there's the next one that's even worse. And I've got more water in that creek than I've ever had. I got more water in that creek than I had three years ago. Yeah. No, I, for me... Have I killed beavers? Have I trapped beavers in the past? Yes, I have. Am I proud of that? Not particularly. There are some places where if the beavers moved in would be highly inconvenient for me. Luckily, they're not there now. Other places, you know, I, that big creek, yeah, it, it's two miles. And it's inconvenient not being able to get across it. Oh, well, what a problem to have. I can't cross my creek because it's running so much water. Oh, cry me a river. There's a highway bridge that goes across that. And I guarantee you the beavers aren't going to screw that up. So as yeah. long as I've got the highway and the bridge across that creek, I really don't need to get across it too much on my side by side. And I can just let the beavers have it because they're doing a lot better job of managing the water level in that creek and managing the brush in that creek than I could ever do. They're on the job 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. I show up for a couple hours every day. Yep. And that's the point we've gotten to like the a thousand beavers. I would never recommend that to anybody. <laughs> it was a disaster, but now that we've thinned their numbers down to what they're at, we've left them alone. Same with coyotes. Like we used to shoot every coyote we'd see. Oh, they're killing calves or killing calves or killing calves. And until we had a trapper come out and just kind of say, you know, I don't go after every coyote. I put up cameras, I put up stations, and I look for the problem ones and I go after the problem ones. And if you go after every animal, you're going to open up a can of worms where you're going to let those coyotes that are going to go after your calves into your area. And all of a sudden you got a problem. Yep. So we do have predation insurance up here and we utilize it because, you know, the calves, you know, they're, they've been, they've been eaten by a coyote, but were they alive? Was that calf alive when the coyote found it? Or is that coyote there cleaning up dead animals cleaning up your dead stock. You know, I, yeah, they have, you know, you get a cow go down on you. We, we had a cow go down in the bush and the coyotes went after her while she was alive. That's rare. Like, so we got to start thinking if we start eradicating all these predators that aren't causing any issues, 
we're just going to cause more problems for ourselves. And I watched that little big farm a couple of years ago on Netflix and like just watching how they used nature to fight nature. And, you know, you can't fight every problem. You've got to find another solution. And that's when we've had a bunch of shifts on that. Same with our bale grazing. We'd make them lick it to the dirt with bale grazing until we started a couple of years back. I drove up onto a bale pack, sunk the truck right to the axles and I was ticked off that I sunk my truck, but I got thinking, Hey, like we're in one of the worst droughts. Like I don't, we haven't experienced drought. Like in, in my life, there's a drought of the eighties that all these old guys talk about. I was too young. This is the first drought for our guys in their mid to late thirties, maybe even early forties. This is our first drought. So grass is Brown. I drive up on this hilltop to take pictures for social media about how high this grass is. Sink my truck, man, like these bales that we're making them clean up. We didn't make them clean up that year. Cause we had, we had a lot of hay. Well, now we're, we're using all this bale pack as a sponge. So I back out, finally get out. And on, in my ruts, there's snow in the middle of July and tons of moisture and ice underneath that bale, that bed pack that we had always looked at, oh, it's going to kill everything. But then we started looking at where we're leaving, we're, we're, we're making them lick the dirt up. Yeah, we can see the results of bale grazing for two or three years. Where were, we left the bales, where the, they, like, let's say they destroyed a bale out on a field that we didn't get picked up or something and they don't clean it up and we'd go over there you can see those results seven to ten years later you're seeing the grasses are better you can still see that that green ring on that field after the cows go through so we just gave up like why make them clean it up and make them lose condition when we can keep that organic matter on the soil capture moisture use it as a sponge you know especially when we were putting out the bales during the winter you'd put those bales on the snow this year, we'll see what they do by having the bales already on dry ground. But we've got drifts. Like, those bale rows are a porosity fence that are catching snow and catching snow and catching snow. That snow is either going to go down into the ground or be covered by hay and packed like concrete that it'll take all summer for that to evolve. I'm not worried about what's going to grow there next year because our bale grazing ground, we don't touch it till now. We give it the whole year to rest or the whole summer, spring, and fall to rest. And the cows will go on there either for fall grazing or we'll leave it till next spring the the, the previous spring so a whole year and then we'll calve on that ground and there yeah there's weeds but like i see guys on tiktok posting bale grazing videos and it's dead spots we don't have dead spots we have no dead spots at all by the time spring by the time summer and fall roll around all that grass is broken through that bed pack and what that's going to do down the road for us now leaving all this organic matter behind it's insane like we look back at two years ago when we first started putting three years ago we started putting out bales for a week at a time and not making them lick it to the dirt the amount of organic matter and grass and different grasses that we've never seen because we're importing hay so yeah there are weeds and dad hates weeds he he will never agree with me on just letting the weeds have at her and we've got absinthe wormwood up here that dad wants to hit with every chemical he can find that's there's one quarter land we haven't seeded to grass yet because he wants to kill that wormwood that absinthe until it's gone and i just said leave it like let's seed it to grass and see what happens bale graze on it graze right on top of it bring the, the cows won't eat it they hate it i don't know why um certain times of year they probably would um but we don't graze that ground because it's right now it's it's broken ground that we're trying to get swath grazing and stuff on. But everything will be seeded to grass on our place um, eventually. We will not have any broken ground. If anything, we'll try direct, you know, no tilling into sod with some turnips or brassicas or 
sugar beets or whatever that's down the road that's the, what i hope we will be accomplishing next but this bale grazing thing if more guys would try it and and just don't make them lick it to the dirt like we're, we're guilty of it and then you watch them lose condition and just think about what synthetic fertilizer costs and if if there was a way to measure how much organic matter and how much manure and how much urine we're putting down to that ground i would love to do that and compare that to synthetic fertilizer so if 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 you're putting down if each bale puts down you know let's say 300 pounds of organic matter fertilizer and urine and you figured you know right now let's say synthetic fertilizer is a thousand to twelve hundred bucks a ton what is that organic matter worth that hay is definitely worth 120 bucks a ton to buy it from somebody else 100 percent i've said i've said it for a while that you know if you're gonna buy hay you're not just buying don't look at it as you're just buying forage also look at it as you're buying soil nutrients because that's what some of it's going to end up so and grassy yeah if you approach if you approach the hay equation as just simply forage for cows you're not capturing the whole benefit of your dollar, you know, when that hay bale gets put out on your, on your land, you're not accounting for all the benefits. And that's what we're guilty of. Like we're, we're guilty of a lot of things that we've only in the last couple of years, even in the last couple of months that we've, that we've changed. And it's going to be another 10 years of learning and figuring out what works. And I'd love to cross fence more. I'd love to put all the bales out like nervouses do and just let the cows have at it. And it's, what a lot of guys don't figure in is it, you're not just starting a tractor and going out to feed your cows in this area every day for three to four hours. Like I put out enough bale grazing for the whole winter for 250 cows in three days and two tanks of fuel. So three days and I was only doing eight to 10 hour days. That's nothing. And, and especially when you look at the fuel consumption, you're not in our country, unless you have a heated shop, even in a heated shop situation, you're starting your tractor and letting it run. You're driving from point A to point B back and forth. We're getting our bales dropped right where they're going to be. And I'm moving those bales, you know, 50 to hundred feet, depending on where you got to move them. And you can place those bales where you want them, where you want the nutrients to be. If you want to graze hilltops, put them on the hilltops. If you're, if your hilltops are lacking grass and lacking nutrients, put them on your hilltops. If you want to stay out of your riparian areas, keep them out of your riparian areas. You have that option. And Guys on TikTok will fight you all the time about, oh, you know, feeding with a TMR, feeding with a bale shredder, feeding with a rolling the bales out. That's better. It's not. And if you would just try it, try it one year. Take take 50% of your cows or take, take 50 cows, put them on a separate piece of land, put out your bales, you know, bale graze that land and leave matter behind on grass. Don't do it on hayland or don't do it on cropland because then you're going to have to go in there with a pro till or the heavy disc to get that so you can drift, seed through it. Right. Don't do that. Put it on your hayland and just leave it. And in three to four years, see what that land does. Because I guarantee you that land is going to be your best producing land on your ranch. We don't use synthetic fertilizer for ourselves, even when we seed our, our cover crops usually uh, and, our, and our, our soft grazing stuff. But there's guys who they pound synthetic fertilizer onto their hayland around here because that gets better. Like $1,200 a ton fertilizer is not making you money. Your grass will not yield enough to justify that that money. It's not going to work. So just try something different. Open your mind. Don't be so, oh, this way my dad did it. That's done. Stop that. I was lucky enough that my dad has been very open-minded 
from the day we started raising the day I got into the cattle business, dad was already doing stuff that most guys do. We were, you know, we moved to May calving. We were rotational grazing where you stockpile grazed. We swath grazed. Dad never took any grass management schools and stuff. He just learned as he went as a cattle buyer from different calf customers, what they were doing and what worked. I was lucky enough to have a dad that focused on that stuff and pushed me to think out of the box and try different things. And now we've kind of reversed roles where I'm trying trying to get him to think out of the box. And, you know, I'm reading dirt to soil right now. And I've got for the love of soil up next. And, you know, I wonder are you Dave Pratt's book. Dad is anti a bunch of the stuff I talk about from these podcasts. He saw Gabe's Brown, Gabe Brown's book when I opened it at Christmas. And I'm like, I want you to read this. He's like, Oh, I know Gabe Brown. He's, he's the cover crop guru. And, Oh, I've been, I've been knowing about him since the nineties. And so now he wants to read that book. So if you can change, and you can get your significant other or your father or your son to change with you. There's so much potential in this cattle business. I was ready to quit the cattle business when I was working at Everaz. I didn't see a future in this business. I thought cattle were, it wasn't going the way that a lot of guys went. There's a lot of guys that got out of the business. Our parents pushed it. My generation, our parents pushed us off the farm. Get the hell out of farming. There's no money in it. There's no future in it. Even up until five years ago, 10 years ago, 10 years ago, no, no. Yeah, five, let's, say, let's say five to 10 years ago in this area, everybody went to the oil field. All my buddies went out to Alberta, made a fortune, but now they've come back with money in their pockets and they're farming and they're making money, hand over fist grain farming, doing okay cat, raising cattle. But I, you know, five years ago, I thought this business was done. Everybody was going to go grain because grain's easy, land's too expensive. So for my neighbors, I tell them all the time, why do you rotational graze? Well, if and I've heard this on your podcast, or heard on working cows, and I use it all the darn time now. If you could take a four thousand acre ranch with five hundred cows, and you could get a four thousand acre ranch for free, and all you had to do is buy another five hundred cows, why wouldn't you do it? They don't get it. I tell them that way, and they still don't. Yeah, but you got to buy the other five hundred cows, and you got to build the fence, and you got to move them every day. Well, you're sitting in a tractor all summer long putting up hay. When you could take that hay ground, cross fence it, and stockpile graze it, and you wouldn't have to put up hay all damn summer. And have more hours and have more hours to go to the lake because you're not sitting what, in the tractor. Yep. Oh, I got I'm going, I'm hopefully gonna get to the lake this weekend, but that's if we get the hay raked and baled and I can do whatever the hell I want. Because I'm number one, when we do put up hay, we get somebody else to do it. Because that makes more financial sense. When you come down to the dollars and cents, it does not pay to put up your own hay. Even if you own the tractor, even if you own the baler, even if you own the land and you don't pay yourself nothing, it does not pay because nobody figures in depreciation on equipment, opportunity costs. They don't figure out a wage for themselves. They figure, oh, at the end of the year, I pay my bills and I got a little bit of money to go to Mexico. I'm good. No, it doesn't work. Financially, it doesn't make sense. So sit down, figure out what your land's worth, figure out what your time's worth. And for me and my dad, I always just laugh at him because he's like, my, my time's $100 an hour. I don't do a job. I couldn't figure out. I'm, I'm a handyman. I do everything myself. Dad does not do anything. He hires a guy to do everything for him. I could never figure out why. But he said his time is worth $100 an hour. Because if he can be on the phone marketing calves, if he can be on the phone or on the road looking at cattle, putting cattle on the internet, his time is $100 an hour. Figure out what your time is worth. Take that into consideration in everything you do. And I've gotten to the point now where I'll call an electrician. I'll call a plumber. I got better shit to do. 
I got my own business to run. I got my own cattle to look after where I've been putting them on the back burner because I got renovations to do. I got yard work to do. I've got things that I know I can do it. So why hire somebody? I've gotten to the point now where, okay, I can hire somebody to do this. I can hire somebody to do that. But there's a lot of stuff I still don't, I do it all on my own. But figure out what your time's worth. Figure out what your equipment's worth. Because one day, oh, my tractor's paid for. When are you going to replace that tractor? Oh, well, then I'll finance it. Well, okay, well, what's that, what's that going to cost? Fuel. Oh, all I have to do is put fuel in my tractor. My land's paid for. Okay, well, if you rented your land out, what would it be worth? A lot of guys don't figure that in. They never want to know. A lot of guys that think they're making money grazing corn and they're cow. Oh, I told a guy once that my costs are almost a thousand bucks a head. How can you run cows for a thousand bucks a head? How's it so expensive? I figure in every single thing I do goes into my cows. And if those cows can't make a thousand bucks a head, like if, if my calves aren't going to make a thousand bucks a head, I'll keep them because I can't pay my bills. I remember, and I, I, I don't know how, but during BSE, we were selling calves for 450 bucks and we were laughing during BSE because our costs were so damn low back then. So if you can, if dad and I talk to guys all the time, if as a rancher, cabin in May, rotational grazing, stockpile grazing, if we could make money through BSE, when the markets were closed and cows were 90 cents a pound, then we should be able to make money when times are good. Yeah. Our inputs are ridiculous, but we're trying to minimize those inputs. Like we don't, we own a tractor, you know, we got, we got six, almost 600 cows and well, let's take the feedlot out. The feedlot's a different entity. It's got a a track to a a front wheel assist tractor, a feed wagon and a, and a loader tractor, but it's sitting empty right now because it doesn't pay to feed cattle down there. Feeding cattle is too damn expensive. Anybody feeding cattle thinking they're making money, you're not. I don't get how you're doing it. It doesn't pay. Subsidy. In, in, my, in my mind. Subsidy. Yep. And subsidies. And for us, we've got 600 cows. We own a one tractor with a loader on it. That's it. We don't own a baler. We don't own a disbine. We don't even own a damn cultivator or a bale picker or nothing. We have one tractor with a loader. Oh, and a post pounder. We got a tractor loader and a New Zealand built post pounder. That is it. And I have a skid steer. <laughs> and a pickup. Yep. And I, I remember being a kid and telling dad, like, why don't we have a skid steer? I, it'd sure be easier to get in the barn to clean our sorting barn out and stuff with a skid steer. Well, it's just another piece of equipment. It's another engine you got to maintain. It's another expense. And until I started ranching on my own, there's a lot of stuff I didn't realize until I started ranching on my own when I left dad in 2012. And he's right on a lot of things. And I hate admitting it, but <laughs> he is. He, he's a very intelligent guy. And the more stuff we can do with the minimal amount of inputs and minimal amount of fuel, minimal amount of equipment, we'll all be better off. And if look over the fence, like look over the fence, what your neighbors are doing, maybe you can use some of those ideas and just open your mind. That's why I tell all these young guys and even guys, my age guys older than me, I got, I got guys older than me that I thought were really good ranchers reaching out and like, well, how are you doing this? How are you doing that? Well, uh, how do you not know? But they don't because they've never tried. Yeah, I'm not going to mention any names, but um, it was a couple of years ago, somebody that I've looked up to and had a, had a lot of respect and looked to for some advice in the past came to me and said, he came to me and was looking for advice from me. And that was, uh, that was very interesting because, you know, when, when somebody you view as a mentor comes to you and asks you for advice, it's a, it's a very interesting shift. I've got to get out of here. My recorder's blinking at me that the memory card is like about ready to, to cut us off. 
So real quick, um, take us out of here. Let us know where we can find you on the internet. Okay, so for Forage Raised Horned Hereford Bulls, Cars and Land and Livestock on Facebook, my personal Instagram and where I post most of my bull and family stuff is Cars and Grass Fed on Instagram. Our beef, direct consumer beef business and our uh, is Carzan Local Market on Instagram and Facebook, and Carzan uh, Market or Carzan Local Market maybe on TikTok is kind of our mix of our cows store personal, and then Carter Bazan on Facebook if you want to connect personally. Carter Bazan on Facebook, and our website for is Carzan.ca for our cattle business, and CarzanMarket.ca for our direct to consumer beef business. Okay. I'll try to make sure I have all those in the show notes, bud. Sounds good. All right. Well, um, I guess uh, try to stay warm up there, and I'm going to go put on my cold clothes and go take care of my cows today. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's been a lot of fun. Y'all have a great week.